Now dig on this podcast. Welcome to Franchise Flicks. My name is Ted, and joining me are my co-hosts, Andy and Zach. On this podcast, we task ourselves with watching movie franchises, breaking them down, and reviewing them, including franchises we've seen and love, as well as franchises we've never seen and frankly avoided. Today we're talking about the Sam Raimi Spider-Man series, the first comic book franchise to answer the question, is there such thing as too many villains? The series includes Spider-Man's one- two, and three. So on this podcast, we usually like to start things off with talking about our experience level with this franchise. And especially with this franchise, because there's so many movies, there's so much media, I don't want to just talk about experience level with just this particular series. I want to maybe talk about experience level with Spider-Man comics, animation, whatever it might be, any Spider-Man that you ingest... So, uh, Andy, why don't you take it away with your experience? So first with the movies, I'll start there. I definitely saw one when it came out. Don't know if it was in theaters or on TV after the fact. But I remember watching and thinking, cool, you know, like Spider-Man is a movie, which will tie into the other familiarity, you know, what I had growing up with Spider-Man. I'll get to that in just a moment. But I don't think I ever saw two all the way through or it's in in its entirety like sitting down to watch the movie it might have been like something where it was on and kind of watched it the third one this was my first time watching it had never seen it before hadn't even really heard anything of it before maybe some vague memories of the trailer seeing it while watching something else but didn't have the pleasure uh, of enjoying it until this time around now with spider-man is like a entire franchise i used to watch the cartoons i think it was like on saturday morning cartoons on fox that was where i would watch it and then the like amazing spider-man would play on maybe it was cartoon network or i don't remember which station it was but i would occasionally watch like those older um spider-man shows as well but yeah so didn't really care for it too much like other types of marvel superheroes it was like them or the rather spider-man x-men anything that played on fox i was familiar with but everything else was dc for me so like spider-man it's cool to see where this franchise was going to go in the end can't wait to talk about it what about uh you zach what's your familiarity spider-man is one of my if not my favorite superhero ever uh, even as a kid um, you know, I grew up, you know, doing the same thing, watching the Spider-Man, you know, the nineties animation, um, on, yeah, like w- WB or whatever they were showing it on back then. I, th- I feel like WB had all those <laughs> superhero shows. I know they had Yu-Gi-Oh. I was a big Yu-Gi-Oh guy too. Yeah, <laughs> me you too. Know? So I think, I think they, that's where it was, but regardless, like that's, that's where I watched. In fact, I still watch that show today with my three-year-old. Because he, like me, is a big Spidey fan. And so we watch that. We watch the uh, we watch Spider-Man and his amazing friends, which, which has oh, Iceman true. and Starlight from, like, the early 70s. It's, it's the best. It's the worst, best show. If you don't know who Video Man is, 
you need to watch Spider-Man and his amazing friends because it is a real treasure. Uh, but like, I I love Spider-Man, so I I try to watch like everything Spider-Man. So I def I my dad is a big Spider-Man fan too, so I saw uh, all of these movies in the theater, um, the including you know the first one. These are very nostalgic to me, even though you know it was, I think, eleven when the first one came out. So it was like perfect like superhero time, and I was always a big Spider-Man fan. So these um, these movies are are really. Um, kind of like I, the, the, some of the earliest stuff I remember about being like a superhero fan, you know, were, were these movies. So uh, I loved that we got to rewatch these. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. Ted? Yeah, um, you know, I'm pretty much right there with you guys somewhere in between. I, I don't remember specifics, but I definitely watched the animated series growing up uh, along with the other Marvel animated series. I mean, that was the heyday of comic book animated series and uh, Spider-Man was just one of the many great ones at the time. Um, specifically with this series, I remember being very excited about it just because Spider-Man was one of uh, my favorites as well. Uh, definitely the one that like you gravitate to as a kid as well, because his character, he's a high school student. He's kind of an outcast. And he's dealing with all these things that kids deal with growing up, but also at the same time, he's a superhero. And that's like the first time you can really relate to a superhero beyond like, that's really cool. I want to be that. It's like, wow, this this guy's doing it all. He's going to school. He's got the hot girlfriend or at least trying to at the time. And he's juggling all that with being a superhero. That's really awesome. Um, but yeah, these movies specifically, I remember them. I don't think I ever saw them in theaters, but I remember seeing them on like TBS. I think a lot of times, uh, this was like the start of FX and TBS playing all of these, uh, superhero franchises that were really starting to ramp up at this time, early two thousands on, uh, their channels with commercials intertwined in. And, uh, I don't know. I just really enjoyed it. Um, and Looking back, uh, some of it holds up, other things don't, but I'm excited to get into it. Um, dude, so turn before you move on, Turner Television, oh, yeah. the the greatest for <laughs> superhero reruns that is their claim to fame. Yeah, I watched a lot of TV superhero really? movies, oh, yeah. Benny Big Blockbuster type stuff. Like, yeah. that's how it's so it, funny. It, you, you like you watch some of these movies and you can you just anticipate the commercial like you know where it sits well uh you know we might get into it later but especially in these movies you can see where it was cut for commercials especially in these movies totally i could see usually it's not as just right in your face about it but like man that's a commercial transition right there uh, hard cuts, very hard yeah, cuts. Yeah. Hard cuts fade to black. Absolutely. Um, so anyway, let's get into the first movie. We'll start with that. Uh, I'm going to read off the synopsis here and we'll get into it. So Peter Parker is a nerdy high school student with a grown man's body and a middle schooler's face who lives with his Aunt May and Uncle Ben next door to the girl of his dreams, Mary Jane Watson. I mean, what could be better? Redhead, uh, who plays her Kirsten Dunst. She was 
huge at the time. Man. Oh, they used her uh, quite a bit to sell these movies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, while on a school trip to a genetics lab, an enhanced spider goes missing and bites Peter while he takes photos of MJ that are definitely for the school paper and not just for him at home. Uh, elsewhere, Norman Osborne, the billionaire scientist weapons dealer father of Peter's best friend, Harry, a lot of uh, connections here that are just coincidental, no big deal, uh, is under pressure to provide weapons and enhancements to the military and test them on himself. He loses his mind, becomes incredibly strong, and becomes the murderous Green Goblin. Peter realizes that he has developed spider-like abilities from the bite, and in an attempt to get money to buy a car, he enters and wins a wrestling match. And, uh, Zach, don't you do a really good impression of, uh, Buzzsaw, or whatever his name, Bonesaw? Bonesaw, ready? Fuck yeah. Bonesaw. I love that. Bonesaw, that's right. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, where was I? Uh, so in an attempt to get money to buy a car, he enters and wins a wrestling match against Bonesaw. He lets a thief rob the man putting on the fight and said thief then kills his uncle Ben. Peter, motivated by Ben's death, decides to use his great power to take on great responsibility and becomes the wall crawling crime fighting Spider-Man. Meanwhile, Norman, incensed by Oscorp's board of directors electing to sell, takes revenge as the Green Goblin, causing havoc and murdering those who've wronged him. Spidey fights him and saves the day, but that prompts Norman to come to an ultimatum. Either Spider-Man joins him or he dies. Green Goblin then discovers that Peter is Spider-Man and that he loves MJ, so he kidnaps her. And that's kind of a recurring theme we might see in these movies, uh, maybe overplayed a little bit. Uh, So Spidey confronts Green Goblin, saves MJ, the two engage in fisticuffs midair and on top of buildings, and Norman, thinking he's caught Peter off guard, launches his glider to impale him, only for Spidey to dodge it using his Spidey senses, and Norman impales himself instead. And one of my favorite quotes in these movies just goes, oh, and gets impaled. Uh, So Spidey returns Norman's body to his home. Harry sees this, Vows revenge on Spider-Man. Then Peter, finally having MJ's love, tells her that they can't be together and walks away from Norman Osborn's grave. So that's the synopsis of that movie. Uh, On paper, batshit insane. But I actually really like this movie. uh, So let's get into it. Uh, Dude, I love this movie. Yeah. I, I love this movie. I think this is such a perfect blend between like the 70s and 80s comics and kind of what we know today as comic book movies. Like you feel the adventure that you get from like, you know, who who was it that described uh, Marvel movies as like a roller coaster ride? And that was like it. You remember recently it was like... Martin Scorsese. Scorsese, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, he's just jealous. Yeah, well, fair enough. But, like, he did, like, (laughs) it was, like, an an accurate description of, you know, what we feel watching a modern superhero movie. It's super adventurous, right? 
but this one just it it it, it, it totally captures the camp of those you know 70s and 80s superhero movies with like the the close-up on the scared face and like you know the just cuts back and forth between like solo characters and uh the cinematography just is just feels so nostalgic while still giving you like a jolt of that adventure would you say that this is the like first modern superhero movie that would then kick off what we know today as the mo- like the the contemporary um basically marvel cinematic universe inspired i think i'd make the argument this was the first movie that really showed hollywood this could make money and that you could actually make kind of good movies from this well when did x-men come out i was just gonna say that there's i think they're around the same time maybe even the same year but there's an argument to be made between the two of them but i think people were more excited even though like x-men is a good movie and people received it very well. People were more excited about Spider-Man because he's more familiar to everybody. And, uh, you know, and they play it up a lot in these movies. There's like a patriotism factor, especially right after 9-11 for these movies and being in New York City. They play that up a lot, which to their credit, they should, especially in the time. You know, it's a good thing to help distract people from what's going on and bring people together and that, uh, sense of patriotism and everything like that. So I think these were maybe uh, a little better received as far as kicking that off and really making people think like, okay, this can be serious, but it can also be fun at the same time. And it really launched us into what we have now, at least like laid the groundwork for it, I think. Yeah. I did just check X-Men came out in 2000. So it was the first mm-hmm. one. So I guess I would give it the credit to X-Men. I just kept thinking about this one though, for some reason while I was watching it, it just felt more like the other ones. I don't Oh no, we just lost Andy. <laughs> we just lost... <laughs> he was mid thought. Come back. I'm, I think I'm, am I here? Come back. You're here. Uh, you're I, your audio. Here? I can't audio. see you, but I can hear you. Uh, okay, my, you're coming on. You're coming on. Camera's loading. All right, describe uh, what just happened. I I don't know. Discord literally just <laughs> minimized, and I couldn't hear anything. And then I wasn't in, so I had to like rejoin. Uh, you just got I booted. No, I have no idea what's going on right now. Uh, my camera's apparently. No- oh, there we go. Um. There he is. Uh, yeah, so that happened. Finish no your... idea what I was talking about before. Finish no, your thought. I mean, completely gone. No, you 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 were you were saying, and I and I think you're absolutely right. What you were saying was that you know this you this is kind of the movie you look to when you think about what kind of kicked off this superhero. Uh, I, I I don't know how else to describe it other than phenomenon, you know, like it it's like a generational superhero. I think this kicked off this generation's superhero movies, I think is kind of what you're you're getting at. Yeah. Well, and let me make the, the connective thread there, too. I, I see you going the what I would 
my main point with this is I think it's the the fact that this is actually like a superhero. It's the singular superhero title as opposed to X-Men, which is like the ensemble. We know all these characters. It kind of lives in its own little universe, which is connected to the Marvel one. But this was really setting up, hey, we're going to introduce like those superheroes that you grew up loving and knowing. That's what this one more so like how the Superman movies of the past um some other examples of superhero movies that we might like think to Batman, for example, right. but those were like on the campy side. This one will while still paying homage to the, the campiness moved in a direction of more seriousness too, where you can actually like tell a full story that isn't just for laughs and um, slapstick comedy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think you can make the argument for movies like Blade as well, which I think came out in 1998. I mean, the late 90s also had a lot of really good, you know, superhero movies, but I think they just kind of harken back to the more like even the 90s, you know, the the Tim Burton Batman movies, they seemed more kind of what you were talking about, Andy, like that that campy, you know, those those original Superman's and and you know even even the you know the Batman from um you know the uh who's like the a good example who played Batman you know from the 60s um Michael Keaton Michael Keaton you know well he's more Batman. Tim Burton isn't he yeah. yeah I know what you're saying I but, forget the Alfonso Something. Anyway, I mean, even I guess my point is like I think the last Batman in that era came out in like ninety six, ninety seven, right? The the small gap of time between that and movies like Blade and X Men and Spider Man, you see this evolution of superhero movies within. I think those three titles you can probably you know just look to for a lot of the inspiration in in the um, modern superhero era. Yeah, but even more so than X-Men and Blade, I think Spider-Man's way more accessible. Kids know who Spider-Man is. Adults know who Spider-Man is. And, like, literally in his own slogan, it's the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. It makes sense with how this movie and the series was received by people. And, again, you know, that whole thing with 9-11, the NYC thing, really just perfect timing for everything. I think it just all came together for the perfect mishmash of things to happen uh, that really propelled this and allowed for uh, the future superhero movies that we know and love today and that we can't get enough of at this point. Uh, but yeah, I think the accessibility is definitely the biggest factor in that, I would say. Because Blade's a little dark. Um, if we're talking about those Tim Burton Batman movies, they're campy, but also very dark, too, in tone. Um, and then even uh, X-Men's very serious. It's got a very serious tone to it because X-Men, uh, the mutants, are an allegory for any given disenfranchised group. Uh, you know, gay people, black people, wh whoever you want to relate them to, you can. It's way more serious than that. This is just a kid in high school that you can relate to, and he's got love drama, he's got friend drama, and on top of that, he's a superhero. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I, I, I think that's a really good point. Just the, the relatability and accessibility of Spider-Man is definitely above some of those other things that we were talking about. Yeah. So speaking of Spider-Man, what do you guys think of um, our Spider-Man? 
uh, Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man. Yeah. Uh, I think he plays a pretty good Spider-Man. I, I think he plays a better Peter Parker than a Spider-Man. Um, I, I think there's a little bit lost from the comic books and the animated series where th- there's a little bit of it intertwined in there, but the Spider-Man you know and love from all those things is very quippy, very quick-witted, and uh, just insults his enemies at every turn uh, with just quick quips and everything when they're fighting. Uh, I think he plays a better timid, nerdy Peter Parker than he does the Spider-Man. And I don't know. I don't know if there's enough opportunity as Spider-Man acting for him to really get that out of there, other than like just action scenes where Spider-Man really looks cool. I don't know what you guys feel about that, though. I think I have a, a different take the the exact opposite i think he does a better job as spider-man than he does as peter parker and i but i don't think it's a fault to toby mcguire as an actor trying to portray this character i would blame casting directors for this to decide hey let's put all these people together kirsten dunce i get it I understand where she's popular at this time but her um uh toby mcguire james franco they all appear much older than a high school student and that's common during movies during this time you know they're always like the 20 early 30 year old who ends up playing the high school student but there's something about it that it just feels weird um i can't like ever truly buy him to be the peter parker when i've seen him in all those other things and especially now if i put my reflective cap on comparing to other spider-men um that are out there there are some better ones um even in animated form, if we talk about, you know, into the Spider-Verse. All the Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> James Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> it's my next door neighbor. I, ha- I I think I'm more on Andy's side on this one. Um, okay. I think he's uh, actually does a pretty good job at at referencing some of the animation um, or animated uh, predecessors. Um, like he, he does get in some like subtle, but quippy comments, you know, especially before a fight, you know, I think he actually, they, they, they do a good job at blending like the much more animated action and um, you know, fights with you know the kind of the more subtle you know comedy and and quippiness that you're used to here used to with spider-man um you know even things like i you know i i can't remember any like good examples so i guess that doesn't really help my point but you know he he does do (laughs) things like you know what uh, hey ugly or you know things like that where like he'll he'll taunt his opponents he does he does like taunt his opponents i guess uh as a general term yeah Um, i actually wrote down one of those lines i he says uh uh where is it uh did your your nice dress did your husband get that for you um yeah to one of the wrestlers uh, like I thought that was a, a good line. Um, and there are other ones dated, too. I'd say, but yeah, well, there are a lot of, uh, dated lines in yeah. this movie. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. I, I guess I get your point. Uh, as far as that, I guess I just didn't see it as much. Like I, I think in my head, I was comparing it to the animated Spider-Man, which like when you watch animated Spider-Man, it's almost all Spider-Man and less Peter Parker. And pretty much all you see for most of the episode is him just flying around and throwing quips at people. And I don't think 
they did it as much maybe and maybe just in my head i didn't think there was enough of that but uh i don't know i i think toby mcguire does a pretty good job as, as far as like just believing that he's meek and timid at the beginning and then uh being able to come into his own skin a little bit later on too, especially like he definitely comes off as the guy who never had confidence and then suddenly has confidence. And it's like, you don't wear that very well. Uh, I think they do a pretty good job with him as far as that. And he does have a very young face, but kind of like what I said in the first sentence of the synopsis, like he's got a weird blend of like adult body and young face, which, uh, looks kind of weird well i mean it's he, he can't be a high schooler you yeah. know so he definitely looks and feels out of place in the first movie as peter parker i just you just can't buy him as a high school student you know yeah well i definitely can't buy joe manganello as uh flash <laughs> thompson flash. Like, oh my god he's huge <laughs> yeah this this movie i think is a great example of you know or something that suffers from just like you know over aging your cast you know it's just a, like a casting director yeah fault not not anything to the actors in this totally i mean they would they're gonna deny a job just because they look like they're you know 36 instead yeah. of 16 <laughs> and as long as they all look like they're 36 at least it's consistent maybe there's just something in the water you know yeah, I mean, it, but when you compare Peter Parker specifically to, you know, like the the one that I know so well is the is the animated series that began in 1994. Um, I think it's just called Spider Man, um, and it's like if you remember, like he's an adult, like he's like a big guy, like they made he's like if you if you were to like put him in person, he'd be like six six, you know, two twenty, and like just jacked like, like so like when you see toby Maguire comparing him to and really we've only seen animated spider-mans at, really to this point so there's there's you have to make him somewhat realistic um so i, I don't hate him like i i think i, I totally forgive toby Maguire for anything this is my you know my my very favorite uh spider-man series so um I'm, i guess i'm a little bit biased but i I don't know. I think the casting is is perfect. Imperfectly perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll say that much about it. It fits uh, its own little universe. Uh, James Franco, though, we we haven't yeah. touched upon him as a a, a recurring character to the franchise. No, I, I actually I like him as a, a character as it's introduced in this one, and I like James Franco as an actor. So anytime I see him in something like. I kind of like watching what he can do with his character. And this one, I think he does just a, a fine job. He plays the older high school. I mean, we just watched him in uh, Scream, didn't we? Isn't he in Scream? No. No, he's not? Who am I thinking of? I don't know. No Matthew, idea. Matthew Never Lillard? Mind. Skeet Ulrich? Matthew Lillard? I don't, I don't remember know. who I'm thinking of now. Um, scratch that. I think it was Scream 2. That's what I was referring to. Timothy Olyphant's in it. Who's the other younger guy? It's James Franco. No, James oh, Franco is in it. No, he's not. He's not? No. 
All right. Well, I like James Franco in this. Uh, Ted or Zach, what did you think about James Franco? I agree. I I, <laughs> I like James Franco in this. Um, I I yeah. I I tend to like James Franco in a lot of stuff too. Even though he's he's kind of just a, a crazy good, crazy dude, but um, he's he does fit that like kind of. It's hard to buy him as evil. That's the only like kind of downside of like when he when he starts to turn on Spider Man. We haven't even gotten to Spider Man two yet, but. Um, that's when I think his character suffers the most, but I love his, like, his just like, Hey buddy, like we're going to get through this together, but still like also super elitist. <laughs> like, and, yeah. and, and you feel it from, to, from, you know, Peter He's like, Oh God, I just fucking hate this guy. Yeah. But he's like, my, yeah, exactly. So I, I, I agree. I, I love Harry, uh, in this movie especially i think he really shines here yeah in the first movie i think uh between the way that james franco i'd say like he probably plays two different archetypes pretty well it's either uh the goofy pothead or uh the rich douchey asshole uh, which is what he is in this movie, and he he plays it very well. I mean, between uh, he's pretty misogynistic toward MJ when they're dating. He really only wants to be with her at a certain point uh, to impress his father. Like he worries about how she looks to his father. Um, he's definitely got daddy issues. Uh, I put that in my notes because like the, his whole motivation is that his dad does not think he's enough in this movie. And, right. uh, it, and that culminates in later on when his father is dead, like he wants so badly to get revenge for that because he never, at least I felt he never got a chance to like become that son that his father wanted him to be while he was alive. So he's almost pissed at Spider-Man for taking that away from him. Um, but but on top of that, he, you know, swoops in on the girl that Peter likes, too. Like, he, he's got no boundaries as far as that stuff. So, like, he, he plays that very well. I'd say where I don't like Harry is in the next two movies, and it's really just how his character is written more than anything than the acting. It's just really what happens to him and with him more than anything. Uh, but in this movie, I think he plays it perfectly. It's written perfectly. And uh, yeah, he's one of the stronger characters in these movies. That's a it's a great uh, call out, you know, when you're talking about his kind of his motivation um, through this whole movie, um, because it really does totally kick off the next movie, you know, Um, and, you know, the 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 motivation for his father's uh, kind of vindication um, that he just can't let go of. and, and you you feel that toxicity from him throughout the entire next movie. Um, so, yeah. Um, I guess, well, what about uh, MJ? Well, it's parlay. Or, yeah, we can talk about MJ. I was going to say parlay that into uh, Norman. But, yeah, MJ is, oh, yeah. like, the center of everything. Um, you know, MJ is obviously, like, she's literally the girl next door. Yeah. Uh, beautiful redhead. Um uh, and she's got some stuff going on that there's like implied, I guess, 
maybe abuse going on uh, with her dad just kind of yelling at her in a wife beater as she goes outside. Uh, she definitely doesn't have the life that she wants. Like that's how Peter and her really connect is uh, what their dreams are. Uh, especially like midway through that movie when they're out there both taking out the trash and talking about what they want to do. She wants to become a dancer or performer. He talks about how he wants to, uh, you know, just live in the city essentially. Um, so that, that's a big connection there for them. And uh, she's also just a huge plot device. I mean, what better way to get Spider-Man to where you need him than to just kidnap MJ. And, it's kind of funny, like half the time they accidentally do it. They're just like, convenient, beautiful person to kidnap here. I'm going to take her. And uh, it just so happens that uh, Peter slash Spider-Man always wants to go and save her. Um, and then they have like one of the most iconic kisses in maybe cinema history. I think like people really, I don't know, like, such an iconic kiss, that upside-down Spider-Man kiss. I think people were trying to recreate that a lot. If we had social media back then, that would be all what TikTok is, is just recreating that uh, with some shitty dubstep in the background somehow. Um, but what do you guys have on MJ? I think that she is uh, pretty much just that, uh, which is a plot device. Yeah. Um, I mean... There's, I I don't want to say that she doesn't have any character because she does. I like Kirsten Dunst as MJ, um, but uh, I mean, there's one purpose that she exists, and it's the motivation for Peter Parker. That that that's it. Along with uh, Harry at that point too, you know, she they yeah. the struggle between uh, between them over her. Um, you know, that, it, that's all that exists. That's like the main conflict, really. It's not even like saving the neighborhood. It's 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 MJ um, and it, it, for the most part. I'm going to dislike her later on in the movies, more so in this first one. But I, I feel like it's a real shame to the character of MJ, at least from like what I think I remember from the cartoons. This one literally just like introduces her as a plot device and then never gets away from it. It's like constantly that like Spider-Man or, um, you know, Peter Parker's goal is just to impress her. Even like that motivating thing to have you reference the conversation by the fence. The next thing that happens from that isn't like anything good to fall from it it's what leads to ultimately the well the conception of spider-man but also, also the death of uncle ben like that he he decides oh i need to impress mj so what do i need to do i need to get a car because that's what the douchebag boyfriend drives so uh, you know a fancy car so let me look up the price of fancy cars back in 2002 and um see what they cost and then let me try to win some money by doing something in a fast money scheme so it's like this whole character like just became a way to motivate us to get to the the ultimate uh turning point for peter parker to turn into spider-man which is the death of uncle ben and that's really one of the big themes of the movie is uh with great boner comes great responsibility (laughs) which okay we're talking we're talking about the MJ character right now, but I didn't say it before and it ties together with this um, perfectly is that 
he peter parker in this movie he's a simp he is and i'll talk about my my transition of this character throughout these films into his, his the various roles that he's but he is truly a simp in this movie uh in every possible way and she feeds off of it and that is what motivates him so you can basically say that spider-man is a simp in this thanks to mj and uh allowing this to continue a hundred and ten percent i was gonna ask your simp cock analysis um but i i i i figured i would wait until a little longer in the podcast um well it's it gets really intense in the third one where it's a okay. whole new like theory I've developed. So we'll get we'll save it. Okay. No, I well, can't wait. I, I do agree. I think, you know, even like from the beginning when he just he has to take the pictures. Oh my god, it's just he's so awkward. He's so cringy. I don't know how she could ever have any attraction for him. Like he's just so awkward <laughs> the whole time. Um but yeah, that's like again, it's his main motivation. This girl that really, prior to now, never even paid attention to him. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Like now that I think of it, outside of when she finds out he's Spider-Man, which is not in this movie, why does she like him at all? Like other than that, he comes off as kind of sweet. But honestly, more than anything, he comes off as an awkward creep. I mean. He's, exactly. He's saying that he's taking that picture for the yearbook, but you know damn well a uh, 17, 18-year-old guy is taking that picture home, and he's not putting it in the yearbook. Let, let's just say that. And if he does, he's got a couple copies, I guess. Uh, no, um, it's, it's 100% in his top drawer, and she knows that by 100%. She knows exactly, like Andy said, like she's, she's yeah. that, you know, she's, the, she's feeding off of it. She loves it. And she's like that, she's like that mean girl. She's like, oh, wh what was your name again? And like, and, yeah. and she just loves like the fact that you can't have her. Yeah. Well, she also goes through boyfriends like their toilet paper. Uh, she has <laughs> Flash Thompson yeah. in the beginning. Then she's dating Harry by the middle of the movie. And then she's in love with Peter at the end of the movie. I mean, well, actually, she falls in love with Spider-Man first. Well, true. That is true. And uh, that's a total stranger who could be anybody under that mask, by the way. But that's all she's about at that point. Uh, and that and, goes and into I, the next couple movies. I, too. Well, I want to say, though, we are not objectifying her. No. At least not intentionally, but it's it's so hard to talk about MJ because she's so objectified in this movie. You, it's it's hard to even get away from that subject, uh, which is 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 probably the, like upon rewatching it, you know, in adulthood, is the worst part of the movie. Um, is how they use MJ. It's it's just it's just disappointing, you know. Yeah, it doesn't age well. But at least you can uh, look back on it and talk about its faults, I guess. And it's not as bad as it could be, I guess. Um, it's it's not objectifying her in the worst way. There are definitely worse ways that, that could have been portrayed. So it's about as family-friendly as you can make a woman just be a piece of meat plot device. Yeah, yeah uh, another exactly. Thing, another thing to add to this topic of... Um 
the MJ character, uh, Leslie's opinion of her this movie. One thing that she commented on was the her hair throughout the movies. So in particular, this movie, it's like the really crazy fake redhead. Um, and it changes in all these movies. But this like even to the point where they made it like her hair isn't real. Like she's not a real thing. She's an object to just get us through this movie. We won't even <laughs> allow the actress to have her real hair for this. We'll dye it a fake red or whatever we did to it to make it right. look real. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's an excuse to get the hot up and coming actress uh, into the movie and she has to have red hair because Mary Jane has red hair in the comics. You can't change that. This well, I mean, they could, but no, I, I not, know. not in two thousand two, right? Yeah, it, I guess if there's an argument to be made, like a time that you couldn't change that, it's like when you know we talked about how this like launched everything. You definitely couldn't, as a studio, have somebody that didn't at least have fake red hair. Yeah, no, you, I think they really did try to go. Um, as close to the, 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 the at least the most well-known aspects of the comics as they could, mm-hmm. you know, yep. including everybody being 35. Yeah. Well, we spent way too much time on MJ. Let's move on to uh, Norman Osborn, a.k.a. the Green Goblin. So, yeah, I love Willem Dafoe. We've talked about him in other episodes, uh, you know, uh, specifically his man bun and Aquaman, one of my favorite things of all time. (laughs) Uh, There's nothing better than Willem Dafoe playing the Green Goblin. He is like comic book personified. He could not even wear the mask and look like the Green Goblin. (laughs) I I mean... It, he, he's got such a unique yeah. kind of scary goblin-y looking face to like his credit. It's not even an insult. It's amazing like how much he looks like the character he ends up becoming. Um, and uh, they get right into his whole origin story. They're just like, yep, he's under pressure. He's going to use himself as a lab rat here. He's going to put himself into the chamber with all the performance enhancers that of course are green. We have to use that to show that he's going to become the green goblin. And he becomes a murderous lunatic after that, who apparently forgets about all that in between uh, spats of murder and rampaging and uh, eventually like comes to embrace the green goblin side of him. When the green goblin in the mirror is like, Hey man, you know, Things have been going pretty good for you lately. You want to stick with me. Uh, but then they've got that uh, great dynamic between him and Harry. Uh, that's one of my favorite relationships in the movie. Um, and I, I do love, too, that like they throw in that he wants Spider-Man to join him, if not kill him. But I, I do like that he like respects Spider-Man enough to be like, hey, you're super powerful like me. Let's wreak havoc together. Yeah, I I think that's uh I mean they're, to their knowledge they're the only ones kind of like each other. You know, at that point, I mean, w- eventually we get introduced to a whole lot of meta humans, um but at this point, uh it's really isolated to the two of them. Um and I think that kind of drives like Norman's Norman knows that at at least through, you know, throughout the movie he learns that he becomes this way because of his experiment um 
and he finds out all about you know his powers and somehow gets an arsenal for for a military um you know at the drop of a hat so right behind a uh, a mirror in his house so um that's one of the best parts that that, that came up uh quick <laughs> he got fired and then got an arsenal um it was it's pretty crazy but uh i mean that's that again that's just part of the 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 campiness that you kind of throw your you know throw your reality out the window at that point um but anyway uh I think that you're absolutely right when you talk about like this could not be more perfectly cast. Uh, the Green Goblin is Willem Dafoe. It's one of my favorite villain villains like ever in a superhero movie, ever. And I know it's like really nostalgic for me, but he is just the best. I love Willem Dafoe, uh, especially in this role. I think it is so good that I would take him in a newer Spider-Man movie, like put him in the MCU. Uh, pull his character it is so grounded and yet still comical because of the way he is as an actor it's believable it fits in the campy it fits in the very much grounded mcu version of spider-man as well so like kudos to as i was just you know throwing shade at the casting directors for picking (laughs) most of this cast um but at least hey willem dafoe perfect couldn't have done better than this. Uh, I'll throw the relationship with him and James Franco. I like James Franco as an actor. I believe what he does, the characters he portrays, the relationship between the two of them. I believe it. I believe it through all these movies. It establishes well in the first one. His even reoccurring like goblinness will stay throughout these movies with uh, Harry. So like, hey, it, like great job, great casting. It works kudos to them for that other things suck but love willem dafoe love the green goblin in this yeah he's just such a cool villain too like this is this is another uh point and when like you kind of see the evolution of you know these comic book movies like he is just so such a cool villain he's such a cool villain like you don't see this in those earlier movies and you see you know when he's flying around and that still looks good today you know showing him on his glider and stuff i i just love him i love him so much and and they did our boy dirty by having him get stabbed in the dick too so like (laughs) yeah i mean i think it was more like his pubic area but yeah i think it's supposed to be the abdomen but it it looks like it's in the dick. He's very short. Dead. Just remember, yeah. extremely short. Well, he's a goblin. He's pretty squat, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, he plays two characters essentially. Like you said, Andy, uh, yeah. Norman Osborn is actually like a very grounded character and believable. And like he gets very upset, like a lot of these CEOs in these movies do when the board of directors undercuts them and loses his mind over it. But then. Uh, the comic book character comes out and that's like his surrogate, his avatar with which he commits the acts of atrocity that he really wants to do. And then they come together and work as a team and become one. And you really see that in that very last scene when he unfortunately accidentally kills himself. He's talking to Peter as Norman and like trying to relate to him as like, he calls him son and like, you know, I've always 
loved you as a son and you're Harry's best friend. And then suddenly he just switches to Godspeed, Spider-Man, and uh, tries to shoot him with the <laughs> glider. And it's just so good. And then, the like I said, my favorite quote is just, oh, and then he gets stabbed. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I love that yeah. scene and the duality between you know him. I, this at this at that point, it's all Green Goblin, and he's just pretending to be Norman Osborn still. Yeah, you know, kind of talking to you know between the two characters. But you do a good uh, Norman Osborn. Oh, thank you. Thank that you. that should have been that. the that should have been the uh, intro clip. Godspeed, uh, Spider Man. You- we can do whatever we want for the, the audio listeners. It's the so best line. There. I That's love true. that we, line. We could change that, but I, I don't know how you can be, uh, dig on this, you know? Oh, it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> so good in a bad way. Oh. Uh, we got a couple more characters here. Uh, does anybody want to talk about Uncle Ben, Aunt May, and like to a lesser extent, like a very small character, but also like stands out, J. Jonah Jameson? Oh. Can we just talk about J. Jonah Jameson? Let's and... do it. Wait, no, Go who's that? It. I'm confused. I don't know who that is. Uh, what's his name? J.K. Simmons. J.K. Simmons. The, uh, yeah. The editor. Oh the yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that guy. Yeah. Oh, I mean, talk about comic book name. characters. Okay, I know, Andy. You, we're we're gonna keep backtracking on your statement that the casting directors did a terrible job because this man was made to play J. Jonah Jameson. He was made for this role. Again, one of the very best casting decisions that I can remember. It was so so much so that he's now he's now recast <laughs> as J. Jonah Jameson uh, in a, a new Spider Verse. Yeah, I'm eating my words by saying, "Oh, if they should bring Willem Dafoe to the the MCU." Meanwhile, they already did it with another character. Yep, that's true. I forgot all about him. God, he's so good. Like, talk about like inspiration from the comics and the in the animation. He just nails the character. Like, he's straight out of that '94 animated series, but funnier. Oh my god, yeah, and it feels like something you would see in like a stage play of Spider-Man or something. Like, just over the top, overacted, fast talking, cigar smoking, uh, just insults everybody at every turn and it, i love the duality too of like uh spider-man peter parker working for him taking the pictures of spider-man but j jonah jameson wants nothing more than to smear spider-man it's like his life's ambition it's like this guy's got something in his closet i want to find out what it is and that's his whole motivation throughout these movies absolutely Which i wonder Go ahead, Andy. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I wonder if there's like anything kind of like some subtext with his character too. Uh, like what is, I don't know the Daily Bugle in universe and like what it's supposed to mean. Um, like, is it like a tabloid newspaper or is it supposed to be like a genuine newspaper? Because if it's the latter, like a genuine newspaper, then like that makes me think he's like the original fake news. Like he's trying to like can change his own story to fit the narrative that he wants based on his own beliefs about a vigilante. That's exactly it. I mean, he's basically, he's supposed to be this corrupt, you know, newspaper editor. 
you know, very much like the, uh, you know, in in the newest Spider-Man, he's kind of portrayed as like the, you know, the Alex, Alex Jones, Jones, right? You yeah. know, that's what everybody compared him to, like the InfoWars, you know, and and it's it's just a different version of that, really, you know. But I, the the Daily Bugle is kind of like the, you know, the the newspaper of the city. I mean, that's what everybody reads. It's a genuine newspaper, you know. It's not just you know, like you were saying, it's not just celebrity and tabloid, though that is a big part of it. Um, it's the it's, New York Times. It's the Times, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so you know, it's it, it, it. That's that is a great point, though. That does kind of add weight to what he's doing and kind of being a, 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 a another, albeit small, conflict for Spider-Man and Peter Parker. Yeah, he he's like a very ground level kind of villain, so to speak. Like he does not have Spider-Man's best interest at heart. He definitely wants to smear him. Uh, he's probably like you could maybe describe him as more of a sensationalist than fake news, I guess. But he definitely has a narrative that he wants to find something that fits it. But you find out like later in the movies, like in three. Uh, he does have some integrity when it comes to like fake photos and stuff like that. He doesn't like that kind of stuff. So he doesn't want fake news necessarily, but he's like, everybody has a skeleton in their closet and I want to find out what his is because he can't just be this wall crawling, web slinging, great guy that there's something under the mask. I want to know who he is. I want to know what he's about. And I want to, you know, show every angle of him, I guess. So I think he just thinks the worst of everybody more than anything. I think he just wants to sell papers. Uh, he knows well, what he knows yeah. what sells. I mean, that's the. I think that's the crux of his character. He's like, I, I don't care necessarily what's the truth as long as I can make it look like this. And like, it, you know, the fake pictures thing. He doesn't want to sacrifice his integrity of using, you know, false information to spin this narrative even that he knows full well he is spinning. You know. Um, he wants it as legit as he can. So it's a very um, relatable uh, thing. <laughs> and, you know, it, 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 it's, uh, it's easily kind of picked out of our social zeitgeist. Now that I'm thinking about it more, though, it doesn't even fit really what the movie wants to do with it, though, because the, the people of the, the town or the town, it's New York City, the people of the city, they like Spider-Man, so I don't know why they would want to pick up magazine or newspapers with like negative headlines of him. Uh, it's really only like the police that are after him. I mean, some of them do, some of them don't. It's actually very polarizing. We don't. Yeah. I don't. We ever see that though, do we? With characters like disliking Spider-Man. Well, I mean, there's uh, there's an example in um, when uh, Aunt May is talking uh, to Peter about Spider-Man. You know, when the kid is helping her clean out uh, her house. Remember that scene? Yeah, so there's a third one, though. I'm talking about I think it's the second one. I think it's the second one. Well, I mean, it, the, I guess I only referenced two because this is a common thread, but, you know, sure. from from one to three, once Spider-Man's on the scene, J. Jonah Jameson wants to take him down. Um you know, he he's, he he pegs him as a menace from day one, so he's got to keep this narrative going. Yeah. Um. And so, I mean, there are people that think that don't think he's doing a good job, but that you know, we see the firsthand accounts of the people that he saves. So, 
yeah, they're going to have a different opinion than, you know, some of the other folks who really just read about Spider-Man. He's more myth than anything. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, now that we're done with him, we got two more left. Uh, we should probably try to breeze through them quickly, but they're important ones. Uh, Uncle Ben and Aunt May. Um, so Uncle Ben is obviously uh, a great driving force for Peter. And uh, unfortunately, that is due to Peter's selfish actions. Uh, you know, he's letting his uh, owner lead him in the, the wrong direction, essentially. And uh, he gets his uncle killed indirectly, uh, but he's the one who lets the thief go. And that ends up being the guy who steals Uncle Ben's car and shoots him. Um, so, you know, it, it, very comic booky in the sense that like, there are so many of these threads that just come together with Peter in the center of them. Uh, but again, it's sort of believable. Uh, they make it believable enough. Uh, but the great power with great responsibility is an iconic line. Uh, and it's straight out of the comics, but it's, it especially became iconic from these movies. I, I think like just like that kiss scene and just like everything else with this movie, people really clung to these things when this movie came out. Um, well, I don't know if you guys have any more about them. I mean, first of all, Uncle Ben, Aunt May, very sweet. I, I love that that grandparent uh, archetype that you get from them versus, you know, maybe the, the, the more modern version of Aunt May, at least. The uh, hot Aunt May. The hot Aunt May. Yeah. Um, I'm on team hot Aunt May. <laughs> yeah, who is it? Was the newest one, Marissa Tomei? I think, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, you can't you can't hate it, but um, I I just like the the wholesome you know grandma and grandpa vibe you get from Uncle Ben and in and, uh, and Aunt May in in this trilogy. Um, but I mean, Uncle Ben is really, I think. One of the most important characters in that he really shapes Peter's worldview in how he uses his spider powers, why he's a superhero. You know, he 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 got his powers. He started becoming more confident, uh, you know, up to where he was getting cocky. And, and that can could have put him in a different trajectory had he not experienced the evil against his Uncle Ben. Uh, so I think this is a huge um, growing point in the, you know, in the in the development of Peter Parker and, and uh, you know, inevitably Spider-Man. You know, that's really what Uncle Ben is there for. Yeah, the, the two characters exist solely for the purpose in these movies to provide plot. So it's like something has to happen to trigger something. But then also like the Conscience. moral elements. Yeah, we have to like yeah. we have to teach Peter Parker lessons not spider-man lessons but spider-man will learn lessons through peter parker so she'll uh aunt may will give some l lesson um i can't think of anything from the first one but the you know uncle ben is pretty much that primary role in the first movie and then it turns to aunt may and the the other two movies uh but that's their role it's like let's serve this one plot device whatever we need it for uncle ben in the first movie to be the thing that causes him to go down this path Aunt May and the Bake Heist later on, um, but there'll be these little plots. But the most important thing with these characters is that they're going to give us a moral lesson to teach Peter Parker so that way Spider-Man can learn from it and save the day. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even though they're his aunt and his uncle in these movies, specifically in this series, they are more apparent figures than anything. 
um that they are portrayed exactly like that and they like really shape like you said zach how peter becomes an adult like he is at this transition period right now between high school and college and turning into an adult and these are like really the things that drive him to learn what it is to be a man uh you know not to like be misogynistic about it or anything like that but um just like to be a responsible adult more than anything and uh you know the lessons that you have to learn to be an adult and they try to give him like kind of the cliff notes version of it and he doesn't really take to it at first and he always has to learn it on his own but they spell out the themes of these movies right away it's literally they couldn't uh they can put it on a billboard and it wouldn't be as obvious as they do with aunt may and uncle ben but they do a great job with it um i will say aunt may uh gets kidnapped almost as much as mj uh or or gets close to it like she does get confronted by green goblin in the first movie and like she's injured so that's motivation to kind of draw spidey out uh but then in the second one she like you said andy the uh bank heist she gets kidnapped in that one and and it's just one of those things too where it's like doc ock happens to be at the bank peter's at the bank with his aunt and that's the lady he decides to grab and of course spidey's gonna go right after him it's just kind of funny how they're like yep right on the nose we're just gonna go for it like that but these are comic book movies and you just gotta turn off your uh sense of disbelief with these but they're great characters and they're they're huge for those character moments for peter yeah, they're just his 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 influencers, really. I mean, it, yep. and you know, you mentioned like his being them shaping him in as an adult. You know, but he's got to take this transition from you know, it's a teenager to adult on top of this transition of being a regular person to to a superhero. So not only does he have to be a functional person in society, but he's got to learn how to uh, use this newfound gift. Um, you know, for, for good and for the, you know, the benefit of all versus himself. Um, and so I think him actually being Spider-Man gives him that, that, that weight gives it more, gives what uncle Ben and aunt may have to offer more weight. Unfortunately, it is undercut in this third movie, um, by the development of a, a new character they introduce, but at least in the first two movies, that moral choice holds up Ben's lessons realized well yeah, i mean try to retcon things a little bit yeah, yeah. you know because uh, the motivation for spider-man is had he made because it's all about willem dafoe says this uh throughout the movie he's like you, you have to choose like to do something like they're gonna they're always gonna view you to be bad you like you have to make the choice um and Peter's like, oh, you had a choice. You could have made the choice, and you, you didn't. Um, and then he that's why he blamed himself. He had the choice in that moment. He chose vengeance over doing the right thing. Meanwhile, we learn later on, no matter what had he done, uh, the person who actually killed his dad, or dad, uh, uncle, probably would have done it anyways. Well, yeah, but it's, I mean, perception is everything. I mean, the fact that he thought he, he that he had let that go shaped him you know exactly yes but then i'm just saying that like that later on they're going to undercut it as like the it didn't really matter like oh i don't it think it, i don't think it undercuts it at all actually 
but we can we can talk about that we'll once we get there. Sure. Yeah. 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 And, and I think people would forgive you if you just kind of ignored uh, a dumb plot thread from the third movie. Well, there's maybe a couple, I think. But yeah. um, so well, any that does it for characters. Yeah. Um, well, there, I think we'd be more. I'd say we'd be remiss with Marvel movies, especially without talking about cameos. Obviously, uh, you've got Stan Lee. Was this Stan I wasn't Lee. sure if this was the first Stanley cameo. Um, Ted, was he in X Men? Was he in X Men at all? Was. I don't think Can't he was remember. either. I'd have to rewatch, but I don't think he was. These cameos were kind of weird, though. Like, I, I really like the ones in the current MCU way mm-hmm. better than these because, if I'm remembering correctly, in the first one, it's like he kind of just moves somebody out of the way and it's like, oh, that's yeah. Stanley. Like, if you're in the know, you know that's Stanley, but it's just like, well, he asked to be in the movie, and we just shoved him in. Uh, it almost seemed like they begrudgingly did it. In I don't remember what the second movie one is, but the third one is actually like a decent one where he ends up yeah. talking to Spider-Man, and uh, he gives homage to something that he says in uh, a lot of his comics. And I've read like a lot of the original run of the X-Men, and a lot of his blurbs that he writes at the end of his comics, he ends with Nuff said. And he says that to Spider-Man at the end of that. So I, I really enjoyed that one. But these the first two, I think, are kind of just like, eh, let's put the old man in. More more like an Easter egg than anything else that turns into something a little more meaningful. Um, no. But definitely not as good as MCU. Another, I'll throw it out there. Uh, Octavia Spencer has a very brief role in this. <laughs> Did you catch that? Yeah. yeah yeah she's uh, I, she she's taking in the uh the entrance at the at the wrestling yeah. ring and, and there are going to be other characters of like different f- more famous actors that i feel like shouldn't have been portrayed as like these background characters but they're in there and every time they popped up they draw me out of it i'm like oh it's so and so from that thing or like whatever like why are they here and they're like just they'll have like a couple lines of dialogue and that's it never see them again i mean that was probably a big role for octavia spencer at the time at the time oh absolutely you know like she got a speaking role in a movie and it was 2002 that had to be like the very beginning of her career yeah, and another one I think she shows up first in this movie is Elizabeth Banks is uh, the secretary yeah, at yeah, uh, the yep. Daily Bugle, and that's yep. another, another one. It's like that's Elizabeth Banks. She's huge, but at the time you got to think, like you said, that's got to be a big role for her at that time. Yeah, that's probably a better I think example. It's going to be another couple years until something like. I don't know, like Zack and Miri make a porno. Like or the Judd Apatow like movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. all that kind yeah. of stuff. Uh, that Those raunchy comedies where she started popping up in. Um, well, uh, do we have any more characters or do we want to move on to other topics? I think, uh, are we ready for the next movie? Uh, well, we didn't talk about music at all. Yeah, oh, we haven't talked about I... All right. Oh, all right. Go ahead. Uh, somebody yeah. start. I got something to say about CGI. Well, uh, okay, let's so go CGI. CGI. Um, you know, the first thing I noticed for CGI, and it just doesn't hold up very well, and it's like whatever. Uh, the kind of the intro to the movie with the the webs and the logo and stuff is is very much like just computer generated. It looks like a background that you'd make like a screensaver for something in like two thousand five or something. Uh, like it's fine, I think, for the time, but looking back at it now, it's very dated. Um, 
Ted, real quick with that. I like yeah. what you said there about like not appreciating what it looks like because it looks bad CGI. I will say I liked it how, though, in all these movies, it was like previously on the last movie you watched. Let's get you caught back up with all these um points that have you know important things that happen uh, and then also a little like easter egg with the third one they actually have it be um venoms like stuff that comes around the spider web too so mm -hmm. it's like a, a tiny little thing like to ca connect it so as much as i don't like the look of it i'm right there with you i actually like how they use this which was like an old style movie so let's run through the opening credits um through some kind of like animated thing yeah I'm not personally a big fan of like the recap kind of thing, but I do agree as far as like the intent of it, like it was all spider webs and all this different stuff in 3D uh, generated stuff. It worked and I think I know what they're going for. It just doesn't hold up very well and that's fine. I'm personally just not a big fan of the whole recap thing because I, I always think like, especially in a series like that, if you're watching Spider-Man 2 or 3, you better have watched Spider-Man 1, it, you know? That's just me personally, and I don't know. Maybe that's just, like, the current culture of, like, when you go to see the new MCU movie, uh, you probably watch a couple of the movies that were right before it, or if you watch the new Star Wars movies, you're going to watch the entire series through once, and, and maybe that's a new thing currently, and maybe that wasn't as big back then, but... You're, you're absolutely that's that you hit it on the head. I mean, that's just today's culture. That's what we're used yeah. to. Yeah. So, you know, going back to again, I mean, we've already talked about it. I mean, this is probably one of the first movies that kind of set off this modern era of superhero movies. And so not every maybe not everybody did see Spider-Man one. You know, maybe they're going into Spider-Man two because uh, they they heard Spider-Man one was great. It had great success and they like Tobey Maguire and, you know, it's a date night movie. Movies were a much different event back in the early 2000s. You know, yeah. you go to the movie just to hang out and, you know, and, and watch a movie on a date with some popcorn. You know, it was more of a social event than, you know, the reason we go to movies now. You know, I don't even want to sit next to my friends when I'm watching a movie. You know, I want to be able to don't talk to me. I'm I'm watching this movie. <laughs> You know, like it's yeah. just it's it's a totally different experience now. So I guess my point to all that is, you know, when I watch these these movies and when we have while we've done this podcast, it's been really interesting for I think in my, my perspective is like when I watch a movie that is not from, you know, the 2010s, I instantly can transport my brain back to the time that movie was created and none of that stuff really bothers me. Like I was going to touch on the CGI, you know, in general with that point is that a lot of it's not awesome. You know, a lot of it doesn't hold up to today, but I don't notice that really when I'm watching it because I just, I, my expectations are that this was made in 2002 and it, you know, it just totally, it creates a feel you know, in a texture more than takes away from the movie, in my opinion. I'd even go further than just say, like, it isn't actually that bad. It's when we've looked at other this time frame, like Matrix that we've reviewed. Um, the Santa Claus is different because it's way different budget, you know, type of situation. <laughs> yeah. um, but at least I'm, I'm trying to think of what other franchises we've done that have been late 90s early 2000s scream um not as big budget yeah. with hollywood not cgi there but it 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 doesn't 
it's not terrible obviously it's not good it's better than the prequel cgi i think like if i'm comparing what you see and there's just a lot of it that happens so maybe that's why it stands out more so to me um i would say i like this better than prequel cgi at the end of the day and then i i wrote down one scene actually particularly to pay attention to the cgi was the fire like brawl that happens at the end um between spider-man and the green goblin how i thought was like wow this actually looks way better than i thought it was going to when i remembered this scene was coming up i was expecting i had already written down in my notes cgi get ready to type this and i was like oh pretty good i actually didn't think that was bad at all so i think it like it, it holds up still a little bit not good at all I'm not saying like it it would pass today's standards but at least in terms of viewing doesn't take me totally out of the film while watching yeah and uh, on top of that, you have to think about, too, this is the first movie in a series, so the budget's going to be smaller because they're testing it out. Again, we're talking about uh, really launching this whole new superhero era that we have now, and they didn't know what it was going to become at that time. So uh, you had to save your best CG and most of your budget for that big climactic fight. So, like, it, even though I can say this stuff doesn't hold up, I do appreciate it, and it doesn't look that bad. I only have a couple scenes where it's, like, really noticeable, and it's just because of... I, I think it's really just, like, what we're watching it on compared to what we were watching it on then. Because, like, HDTVs in 2001, 2002 not everybody had them yet even uh, and they were more expensive i think people were still watching stuff on tube tvs a lot yeah. and you'd maybe only see this in the theaters uh this kind of detail and like the only other scenes i can think of are like when he's testing out his powers and he's jumping from rooftop to rooftop they do a uh from the sky kind of uh like sky cam kind of deal that doesn't look great but honestly, throughout the series, the things that look worst are when they're trying to animate people mm -hmm. in regular clothing. What does look really good is people in costumes. Uh, they, they do a good mix of practical effects. Uh, the costumes for both Spider-Man and Green Goblin are so high quality. Like, they look so fucking good. Um, like, to the point where I had in my notes, I'm like, it's the suspension of disbelief, but like, you see Peter sketching his uh, pictures of what the Spider-Man costume is going to look like. It's like, how did he get the material to make this like uh, sweat wicking, like almost like Under Armour kind of uh, looking stuff that he's wearing? Like, it looks so good. How did he ever do that? And uh, Green Goblin, too, uh, even though it's like probably in reality all plastic, it looks like it's metal armor more than anything and it just looks great uh yeah th there's only a couple scenes that i can really say like look bad but again you got to look at it through the lens of time and where they put it into the movie like you said andy that last scene they had to just splurge their entire budget on that probably and it looks pretty good yeah i agree and, and it, it along the lines of that last scene, I, I wanted to bring up some of the choreography as well. And I think that fits into this as a subcategory a little bit, you know, uh, in the, in the last, um, fight between Spider-Man and Green Goblin, I don't know if you guys noticed, but every single hit 
on each other. They send each other flying until something stops them. And it's just a really nostalgic fight sort of style for me like just a big punch just sends them flying until until they hit a wall and that's the only time that they stop uh, there's not like really a dragon any... ball z fight yeah yeah exactly it's not really like nuanced at, at all you know some of like the you know the aerial fight scenes are really cool you know when green goblin's flying and, and even hobgoblin in the in the um in the second one um or third third one actually um but at, at any rate you know I, I i just i think the um all of that uh kind of just brings me back into it to a time where you can watch those types of things that might stand out against a movie from the you know the 2010s i think that's kind of like when everything got just got better cinematically you know um but it, it just, you just you you feel that nostalgia and texture um, from those aspects more than it just taking away from the movie as a whole, in my opinion. So, anyway, um, what do you guys why think don't about we move on uh, the music then? Music and yeah, move on. Well, I mean, it's a Danny Elfman score, so you know it's good. It's very good. Um, it recurring themes, which is common with him, I. I wish I could remember the Spider-Man theme uh, that when he's swinging through d during these moments where he's about to go and face uh, the big bad. Uh, I can't remember it off the top of my head, uh, but it's really iconic, especially for this series. Uh, it goes throughout all the movies. Um, that's really the only thing that stands out to me, I guess. Uh, I don't know if you guys caught on to anything else other than just like the main theme, specifically like Spider-Man heroic theme. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this whole score is just filled with accents, hits, and swells. <laughs> you know, like that's that's pretty much the textures that Danny Elfman used to create this um, this very texturized score. Um, you know, there's not you don't notice it a lot. Um, you it has a perfect underscoring kind of quality to it um, where it just enhances the visual component um, you know especially when he's swinging through you hear that blasting horn and string section you know but you're not it's not still not your focus because of the um, you know kind of big visual component of the of you know the sequence that's happening there and I think they pair very well but I mean yeah. that's Danny Elfman he's great yeah it's not my favorite. I, like, I like Danny Elfman music. I, the superhero business of it, it reminds me too much of the campiness with the Batman, Danny Elfman music. There were pieces yeah, that I don't remember if they were themes or they were just kind of that like background music that it provided. But they did pull me out of it because I just did think it was cheesy when I and it was something I wanted to pay attention to is listen to the music in this to see how it fit. Because I think the modern superhero movies do a really good job. Like Alan Silvestri with the Avengers music knocks it out of the park. Um, the guy who does the Star Wars and the Black Panther, I can't say his name, Ludwig, whatever. I think he does an incredible job with music. And maybe we're just at a completely different level. But at the same time, it's not the same weight that like I get from John Williams um, with his orchestral scores. Danny Elfman's feels different. So... The fit for the Spider-Man, oh. yes, with the, the campiness of it, fits really well. But f 
what I think I like about the superhero movies going forward is they're moving away from the campiness. So that was a, an interesting juxta, juxtaposition to see more modern MCU type stuff with still the campy and coming out in the music. I think it's an interesting analysis because I do feel the drama in this score still. You know, it is it it's is there. Rem- it's there. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're you you hit the nail on the head. I mean, you 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 point you know to like the Tim Burton movies, uh, Tim to you know Tim Burton Batman, who is all, you know mm-hmm. another Danny Elfman score. They're very similar, and I think that you you it strikes a great balance. And this again kind of goes to my overall view of the trilogy, uh, but especially this movie, it strikes a great balance between that that you know old campy superhero goofy style and the newer. Um, dramatic, you know, stake escalating, um, you know, uh, action adventure movies that we're used to. Um, and I think it, the score represents that pretty well, too. Agreed. Uh, well, I think that does it for Spider Man 1. Why don't we try to breeze through these next ones? Uh, who was uh, gonna read the next synopsis? I'll, I'll, take, it. I'll take it. I'll take it. Spider Man 2. All right, Spider-Man 2. So, you know, a lot of what we talked about uh, in Spider-Man 1 is will kind of carry over, you know, to Spider-Man 2. So, I mean, these and 3 for that matter. So these next couple should go by pretty quickly. But let's talk about the plot here. Um, So uh, Peter Parker is now a college student. So we we move away from the 30-year-olds in high school. Now we're seeing 30-year-olds fresh in college. Uh, More reasonable. Yeah. yeah. He's uh, trying to pay rent. He's, you know, he's, he's delivering pizzas. He's contracted by the Daily Bugle to take pictures of Spider-Man, um, a.k.a. himself. Um, he's just really at this point struggling to manage his time. He's, he's now he's fired from delivering pizzas. Uh, just the stress of being Spider-Man is kind of overwhelming him. Um, you know, he's getting he's he's flunking out of college. He's not going to class. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I love uh, what is his name? Dr. Um, Peters or Connors, Dr. Connors. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. he's he's the best. Um, so anyway, to add to all of this, his aunt's house is being foreclosed on. He feels responsible for his Uncle Ben's death, um, you know, kind of like we just talked about. Um, he He's still feeling that huge responsibility on his shoulders to his, his aunt at this point. Um, he lives in a dog shit apartment. Uh, MJ, his the love of his life, has a new boyfriend, um, and he's now slowly losing his spidey powers uh, due to all of this stress. So he's he's later invited by Harry to see the genius Dr. Octavius to unveil his new fusion reactor. And this was all funded by uh, Oscorp, which is why Harry is involved. Um, so, and this is, you know, supposed to provide a new clean energy source, essentially a new, you know, sort of nuclear, um, power source. So when the demonstration goes wrong, um, Octavius's wife is killed, um, and he becomes fused with his, his octopus arms, um, that we see him in every iteration have. So at this point though, the, arms inhibitor chip is destroyed uh, by the fusion reactor um, after he kind of loses control over it and it slowly takes over his mind. So Peter then decides that he should step away from being Spidey and focus on everything else in his life that has been kind of pushed aside for his spidiness. Doc Ock 
uh, is insane and intent on perfecting his reactor. And he makes a deal with Harry to kill Spider-Man in exchange for tritium, which is like the, the material that powers the, the fusion reactor because he's, he's going to basically recreate this in a, a weird abandoned uh, dock house, I guess, like yeah, a boathouse. Like is that a, what it a is? port or something like that. Yeah, it's a really weird setting that he decides to put it into. And uh, I guess it really just sets up for how it's dealt with later on more than yes, anything that's, that's the only true. plot serves the plot point to get the end it's the deus ex machina yeah it's the only thing that actually gets it to end that's a good point um so anyway um where was i so the uh, peter is is now regaining his powers and in having his life on track so he meets with nj confesses his love to him uh to her excuse me um and he doesn't kind of he doesn't really get the, the the warm reaction he was hoping to out of it. Uh, she's kind of moving on with with her life. Um, well, it's actually the the other way around in this part. Uh, I, I don't know if I wrote it wrong here, uh, but she, if you remember, comes uh, and confesses her love to him. And, and like there are several moments where oh, uh, that's right. I'm sorry. Earlier I, yeah, in the movie, yeah. but I'm thinking of the I, other I movie. Glossed over those. Well, there are like three moments in this movie. Oh my God, you're so like, right. Yeah. I love you. Leave your boyfriend. And she's like, not. Nah. And then it's just classic MJ where she wants what she cannot have. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, so yeah, he's on the other end of that. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Sorry, I, I misremembered that. Oh, no worries. Um, so anyway, so now they're attacked by Doc Ock. They're sitting in the cafe. Um, and uh, he wants Peter to bring Spider-Man to him. So Doc Ock, <laughs> tell me if you've heard this one before, kidnaps MJ. Unbelievable. Spidey goes after him. They fight. Doc Ock does his best to kind of the, his best reenactment of the movie Speed, forcing Peter to stop a train from crashing and killing civilians. So Spidey passed out from exhaustion is taken to Harry. But Harry is unable to kill him when he finds out that it's his friend. Spidey confronts Doc Ock again, saves MJ, defeats him, pleads with him to just help destroy the reactor, uh, and Doc Ock sacrifices himself to drown the reactor. Like we just talked about, that is the only way that this gets stopped. Um, so after MJ sees that Peter is Spider-Man, she leaves her fiancé at the altar, runs to Peter, and tells him that she's ready for the risks of being Spidey's girlfriend. For no reason, in my opinion. Can, can I just mention with, like, that last part, too, it, it sticks out to me like a sore thumb that, like, so much earlier in the movie, like, when she's talking to Peter at the restaurant, she confesses her love to him, but still is in the wedding dress ready to get married to the other dude just to leave him at the altar. Like, she is so fucked up. She has no clue what she's doing. She doesn't know what she wants, and... Man, uh, her character is a fucking mess. I don't like Peter or MJ, but really in this movie and then the next one is when I really dislike MJ as a character. Uh, like everything you just said, guys, about like up to the point of the end with the wedding. <laughs> like her character in this just teases Peter while at the same time her like or him kind of allowing that to happen. And I'll get that to my, uh, you know, my cuck versus um, simp analysis. But like, it, it's just so obvious here in this movie that like 
their terrible romantic relationship that they have is meant to drive the plot in some way to get it to where it needs to go the next thing uh and in the end it's like oh okay so like we went through that whole thing really for nothing had we just like announced our feelings for one another probably at the end of the last movie yeah yeah no i i agree i mj's not my favorite character in this movie again she's just used as a plot device um and and really just moving between guys uh throughout the whole movie and i just don't feel like that's fair to mj it's just not fair to do that to her character no it's not fair to her character and it's also not fair to peter like that he has to be with this character who seemingly just is so flighty and doesn't know what she wants and just goes from boyfriend to boyfriend I've actually been with somebody before where like it seemed like they cannot be without somebody as a spouse or significant other. Like they just have to move on from one person to the next person immediately. They cannot have any separation time for themselves and they are dependent on being with another person. It's almost like, you know, especially in these movies with her being a plot device, her existence depends on her being with some guy yeah i mean you can you can kind of cycle psychoanalyze that and you know, look at her uh home life from the first movie like yeah man that might have something to do with it you know uh which is i don't yeah. think at all intended maybe it was but i don't know if that was an actual intention by the the writers or director but um but you can well, kind of see get the... into this after that though you know <laughs> yeah right you can really dive deep um well why don't we talk about like the one new character? Cause it's all carryover from the first movie for the most part. There's one new major character, unless you guys can think of anybody, but to me, it's just Doc Ock. So who is another next? awesome character? I know like it talk about good casting, especially for the villains. Uh, like I, I think your point stood Andy, as far as like the people playing high school students, right. but when it comes to casting these villains, it's just on point until the third movie. Um, but we'll get there. Uh, <laughs> these first two movies, the villains are just almost impeccable. Like, uh, what's his name? I, I'm Alfred Molina. Alfred He's Molina. Such, yeah. He he is a caliber of actor that's way above this actually. And probably shouldn't be in this, but he does totally. it so well. He he is such a good sympathetic character. Uh, he's losing his goddamn mind. Uh, he starts off with the best intentions. He's trying to make this self-sustaining, clean energy. And that's still his motivation throughout the movie. But as he loses his mind, he loses touch with his humanity and becomes more machine, Doc Ock, with those arms. And uh, becomes yep. less... Uh, worried about what his actions, uh, those consequences are on the people around him. He really is willing to sacrifice everybody between uh, making deals with Harry to get Spider-Man, between stealing MJ just to motivate getting, uh, well, at that point, it, it's a motivation to say, well, Peter Parker, you better find Spider-Man, uh, and I'm going to take her, and you get her back, essentially, when you get me Spider-Man. He just doesn't care who's collateral damage at that point. He's just taking hostages. He takes Aunt May at one point in the bank we talked about a little bit. Uh, I mean, he just loses all touch with humanity until the very end when he has his redemption moment. And 
you know, maybe it's a little hokey as far as like the setup and the deus ex machina in that sense with uh, being in that little port and being able to drown the reactor, which is really the only way to do it, uh, to get rid of that thing. But as far as his character arc going from this awesome scientist that uh, Peter looks up to, to losing his mind, to overcoming the machine that has taken him over, essentially, it is a really great character arc, I think. Totally yeah, agree. I think he's, his ahead, character man. probably just stands out to me the most from all these. This is the one movie where I wrote the least amount of notes, but like a lot of the things I'm looking at here all have to do with... Um, either some things like I just like notice random little bits, uh, but like the most depth stuff is with Doc Ock. Uh, I feel like he, they just, they, another good job, as you guys already mentioned with the casting directors for this one, but he's believable. He's one of those other, another villain that could translate well into the more modern superhero storytelling. So I I think they did um, a great job with his character being the villain. Um, One downside I'll play negative on it though, just so, uh, um, can kind of give balance to these movies here of things that work, but then they don't work for them, is that one thing they depend on is the villains can't actually be like true villains. They have to have some kind of flaw so that way you can forgive them. Like you can even say the Green Goblin, his flaw is he's like, you know, the businessman, he wants to do the right thing. So he's like, you know, I'm going to test on myself and get this thing to work. And it turns you, one of the side effects, is it basically into a super villain, you know? the only motivation for him to be bad is that with doc ock it's the same thing he sees his wife this tragic thing happens to him he sees her die uh the inhibitor chip gets broken with this artificial intelligent machine that's on him that he knows like oh hey i have this chip on so it doesn't control me um and we can forgive him for that later on when he redeems himself so it's kind of like we have to give this villain something so that way spider-man can like see the good in him and make the right choice as opposed to being just the straight up bad guy well yeah a hundred percent um you know the a lot of these villains are not they they don't start off that way um and and that is uh i think a big part of the Spider-Man villains in particular, but I think many villains in these types of movies is that they do have some shred of humanity left um, because they weren't always like this. You know, in the, in Doc Ock's case, everything becomes a means to an end. You know, he is going to do what he has to do to reach his goal of creating this. You know, the these arms kind of connect with his brain um, and and form kind of a coalition a co- some you know some cooperation between um you know what doc Oc- what what dr octavius wants to do for the greater good um and kind of throwing out his inhibitions um because of these arms um you know there is meant to be um that humanity connected with the evil um and I think that's why I like these villains so much. And maybe that's why I like Spider-Man so much is because um, they all kind of share 
um, that quantity, you know, all of, all of his villains. But Doc Ock in this movie is actually super complex compared to what we've seen from Doc Ock in the past. And I'm not a big comic book reader, uh, but the iterations that I've seen of Doc Ock, you don't really get all of this exposition on the character. Um, and he is a super complex character compared to what I've seen of him, you know, in past iterations. Yeah, I mean, from the animated series and I think the comics, too, he seems more like an actual villain with a really bad bowl cut. Um, but, you know, they, they did a great job of somewhat retconning and making their own. And maybe, you know, with, with the the more modern comics, like 2000s on, things have become more gritty and more grounded. So maybe there is an iteration in the comics that I don't know about that is... Uh, very reminiscent of that that they pulled from but if even if they did or if they didn't they did a great job of making it feel grounded in reality um but yeah that there's that duality and it's very similar to the one that uh norman osborne goes through uh with the green goblin i think he loses himself more and becomes full-fledged green goblin but there is that kind of working together with the thing that is evil uh it's more so a means to an end for Doc Ock here, and he's able to regain his humanity and take down the thing that is going to cause all of the issues. And he's doing it all for the right reasons. And I, I think at a certain point in the movie, he's thinking, especially with the influence of the arms, that, well, it's going to be worth it. There's going to be a little bit of collateral damage, but ultimately I'm going to be a hero. I'm going to be revered and I'm going to have done this great thing for society on the whole. Um, yeah. But he, he luckily realizes the error of his ways uh, with uh, Peter pleading to him to, you see that struggle too, where he has to like literally overcome and tell the arms like, look, I'm in control here. We have to do this. You have to work with me now. Um, it's just a great character arc, and uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I want to. I want to ask you guys something kind of about that. I mean, do you think that an intended theme of this movie is that you know humanity will kind of prevail? over technology, especially at a time when technology is advancing so fast. Do you think there's any commentary on the social zeitgeist at the time with this kind of, you know, this this intertwining of humans and technology, but the, oh, but the prevalation, I guess, uh, is that a word? I I really don't know, but the prevailing of (laughs) humanity um, of over the technology. I think I there's to... something to that. Uh, go ahead, Andy. Sorry. No, you, you keep sharing your thought. Uh, I, I guess what I, I'm thinking is uh, just there's something to that in the sense that, yes, uh, you know, he, not necessarily even that humanity will prevail, but like what makes us human is more important than the things that we can create. And uh, I, I think that's, that's really yeah, that's the, a good the big theme of this. But but it, it ties right into what you were saying about it. Um, you know, it, it is a commentary on that. I don't know if it's the biggest commentary of the movie, but it's definitely part of it. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not saying I, it's I like kinda, the main theme or anything. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah, the, the main theme, and I think it's kind of funny, like I wrote it down like this. It's learn some time management skills, Peter. 
just learn how to manage your time. Don't stress out too much. And it, it almost feels like a TED talk in a way. Don't overbook uh, yourself. Yeah. Don't stretch I, yourself I, too thin. I, I like that better, Ted. Because uh, I, I would say, like, I, I would like to think that there was some deeper message here. But, it like, at all, it's probably very loose. I think, if anything, they're just kind of, like, piggybacking off of what might be a popular movie trope element like artificial intelligence you know my nanotechnology i think is one of the things that they're working on too i think is referenced at some point so it's just like a a popular sciencey word in 2000 uh the 2000s i think more importantly for um the character and like the lesson that's being taught here because i don't remember the line but it's something he tells peter at the dinner the two of them are having or with his wife too about like something like why we do the things like why we do science what you need to do what its purpose is and then peter oh sorry peter reminds him of the at the end and that's what convinces him to ultimately destroy his machine it's like remembering the reason we want to do these things so I, i don't think it's as intellectual as you know a commentary on the struggle man versus machine they just kind of use that at the surface level of it. But the more important piece is the lesson that gets taught from this human character about like how we grow and making the right moral choice. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I agree with that actually. You know, I, I, again, I don't think it's like necessarily the biggest theme of the movie, but it's, it, you definitely feel that, that pull, you know, that, that, that the pull of that thread throughout the movie. Yeah. Um, I, I've got one more theme real quick here, uh, it, and it it ties together with uh, Peter's relationship with both MJ and with his Aunt May, and it's really like uh, the, the whole crux of the last scene of the first movie is that love in the end is sometimes worth all the risks that come with it, because like his big thing at the end of the movie is I can't put people at risk. I can't have people know who I am. I have to, you know, despite the fact that like my entire motivation of the first movie was to be with MJ, uh, I can't be with her. And, you know, it it even comes to fruition with uh, that scene when they're in the diner or restaurant where she confesses her love to him. And she says flat out, like, uh, do you love me? And then he says no. And you can tell, like, he's obviously struggling with that. And she knows he's full of shit to the point where she says, then kiss me kiss me right now um but but also that's her trying to figure out if he's spider-man too because she has that weird obsession where she has uh her boyfriend then fiance at the time do the upside down kiss with her uh which is pretty fucked up actually if you think about like her trying to recreate that with somebody who's clearly not spider-man you think that's Um, fucked up wait till the next movie yeah that's fair um but yeah love comes with the risks that uh, I guess it's just worth the risks. And then telling Aunt May, he confesses to her like what he thinks his role in Uncle Ben's death is. And that's that takes a lot out of him to do that, especially with what's going on with her, with her house foreclosing and everything. And at first, uh, she does not take it well, which is understandable. Uh, but then she forgives him and is able to be there for him like she always is in these movies. And, uh, you know, it, sometimes you just got to rip that bandaid off and, uh, you know, don't keep things from people that you love. Well, I mean, you mentioned that 
you know, he's he you joke, I should say that, you know, the uh, theme of this movie is time management. Um, and and but the reality is, I mean, it, he through this movie, he's trying to lessen his load. Um, and that includes, you know, the the weight of being Spider-Man and the secrets that come along with that. Um, you know, it's it's not only this you know, physical and, and responsible load that he feels that he carries. But it's also this emotional baggage that comes along with being this superhero that he really has to live a totally separate life. And so at that point in the movie, he's really trying to just totally clear his conscience, lessen his stress, lessen his emotional load so that he can kind of go back to being normal Peter Parker. He just wants to be normal again after having this experience of being Spider-Man. He he kind of sees the opportunity when he's losing his powers to be Peter Parker again. Um, and, you know, throughout the movie, he realizes that, you know, no, he can do both and he needs to do both. And he and eventually he, he becomes both again. Oh, and he goes through this transformative process from being just a, a simp to truly embracing what it means to be a cuck. And that happens throughout <laughs> this movie. And, and and he ends as a true cuck. Like, I, I was shocked <laughs> by the, the character development in this way on um, the second one. When I, I used my nails, because I was like, wow, this is perfect. I can't believe he went from uh, totally fawning over this girl just for the sake of trying to get with her to then like basically being thrown at him this whole time yet he has to either reject it and then want to go back for it and playing into it uh only when he sees her with like another male figure so like yes he went he transformed from the simp to the cuck uh, by the end of this movie I great that analysis great great analysis again nails it Absolutely. every time nails it every time i, I don't i want to forget Oh, go ahead. Uh, I don't want to forget about some other characters too. Like uh, I'll say that James Franco, um, Harry has kind of like a glow up in this movie where he goes from being <laughs> the, the high school kid to the businessman. Uh, and they don't cut any corners with this. You don't know like, wait, so he didn't go to college. He was just like high school. Good enough. Now I'll inherit the family business. We'll get him in a nice suit. We'll have his hair done a little more slick now. Like, I'm all for this Harry. Uh, James Franco, nice glow up in this movie two years later. Um, and then there are, are, I don't know if we want to talk about any of the other characters, but I do have some cameos that I want to at least mention. Um, yeah, that go for it. In this one. Uh, obviously, Stanley, you know, he has one. We've already talked about how it's not as good as the other ones. But I want to mention that uh, Bruce Campbell has a reoccurring character in this that is or different versions of a character i guess and i didn't realize it until the second one i was like oh it's the same guy as the announcer so i wrote that down it's the he's the ticket like chaperone guy uh, in the theater in this one um okay so it's like, cool yeah. to have bruce campbell come back in the third one he plays the host at the restaurant yeah, I noticed him in that one. I never noticed him as uh, the, the guy in the ticket booth, I guess. Yeah, he's the the guy or he's standing at the door um, letting uh, people in and he denies Peter entrance because it's already started. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I didn't realize he was in the in the first one as the wrestling announcer. That's a good, that's wrestling a good announcer, that one went right over my head. Yeah, uh, it wasn't. I didn't, I, I didn't realize I, that. I noticed he was in the first two that or the second two. Yeah, that I thought, oh, let me see if he was in the first one. Um, so he has a recurring, uh, you know, his little cameo appearance. Uh, the actor Daniel Kim, he was one of the characters in Lost. He plays 
like one of the research assistants for Doc Ock, mm-hmm. and he has one line. I don't remember what the line was, but it's something to the effect like right away or yes we're doing that now something like stupid throwaway and that's it the only line he has in this whole movie we never see him again well uh, in lost then, in lost he plays Jin, the true. non-english speaking <laughs> person on the island so he probably had more lines in this movie um than english lines in the first like five seasons of lost uh, and then the last cameo character that i love in this movie is Hal Sparks, and he has the best cameo out of all of them because it's the awkward um, uh, elevator ride uh, with Spider-Man. So he's like oh, standing yeah. <laughs> in the elevators. He's coming down because his powers don't work anymore, and it's just like this really way too long of a scene with again random actor hal sparks you know comedian uh progressive commentator who's gonna like have his little exchange with spider-man and then never see him again never have another bit of uh, dialogue through this the movie that scene hurt me it physically hurt me (laughs) i just i don't remember it being as long as it was watching it again was so long it's intentionally played up as too long but yeah it it goes a little bit further than that uh so funny i I guess as far as like references and stuff uh just one that i noticed is uh the first moment when doc ock's arms come to life it when they're being he's being operated on and they're trying to uh unfuse that from his spine uh they attack everybody all the uh doctors and surgeons and one of them grabs a chainsaw which is what bruce campbell's character in evil dead Mm. ends up having essentially as his hand later on so i i think that was uh played up uh on purpose as well and i enjoyed that um before you move on i'm glad you brought that scene up because i wanted to mention that scene in particular um and i guess i'll just jump in now because we're talking about it that scene is so perfectly filmed. Like, I don't know how much you remember about that scene in particular, but it jumped all over the place. You know, just these like these basically comic book frames, you know, that it just jumps to, you know, back and forth. And I just that was the one scene that stuck out in my head that I just I adored that scene. Just seeing basically going through a, a, like three pages of a comic book, you know, just for this sequence, you know, jumping for, you know, the hand goes here and the, it shows the, the fear of the, you know, of the person that it's going after. And it, you know, it's just that, that nostalgia um, and that campiness is what I really love about this movie. Um, and that scene in particular, um, or I should say these movies and that scene in particular um, really drew me to that that feeling of nostalgia yeah that's a good point uh it's really well shot and really well cut more than anything like exactly what you're saying is like making those cuts from moment to moment in that one scene it's really well done um anything else about the plot characters anything well i think we should talk about kind of the evolution of a couple of characters well really i think the last character we really need to talk about is harry um and just how he not only changed physically because you're right andy he does have a quite a nice glow up he is very handsome in this movie um and i would go on a date with him um but he also has a total change in 
in character, you know, really in the Batman, like he he hates Spider-Man. Like he has a total new motivation in this movie. It is not. It, it's part of it is still the you know avenging of his father, um, but it really is driven. I guess that is what it's driven by, but it, it it manifests in the total and complete hatred of Spider-Man, and it takes over everything. Like, he doesn't even care about, you know, uh, his business, really. It's the hatred of Spider-Man. Yeah, that's fair, and uh, that manifests into pretty much mental illness for him. Yeah. Uh, or some conglomeration of seeing ghosts and mental illness because he ends up kind of hearing his father's voice, seeing him in the mirror. And at the end of the movie, that's when he, it, you hear uh, Norman saying, you know, you got to kill Spider-Man, blah, blah, blah. Oh, well, actually, he finds out he's uh, Peter. So he says, no, I don't want to kill him because that's my friend. Uh, throws something through the mirror. That's when he finds the whole arsenal behind it. And that right. sets up for uh, Spider-Man 3. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and we'll talk about that because he's actually not Hobgoblin. Yeah. They call him New Goblin, which is really weird. Um, not a big fan of that. I thought I was going to put in the synopses that he was Hobgoblin, essentially, but they called him New Goblin. I didn't realize least, like, that. Yeah. No, I thought of that while I was, well, we're jumping to it, but I'll just say it now because it's on the top of my head before I forget. I was thinking that the whole time when like he made that appearance, I was like, oh, Wait, what is the name of this character? He has a name. I turned to Liz. I'm like, I can't remember what the character's name is, but I remember hearing this. So when I, I Googled afterwards to see, like, what is the name of the, the character um, that James Franco plays? It's not the Hobgoblin. It's just New Goblin is what they call it. So I don't know if that was intentional, a, a misfire on their end of connecting that, you know, connective tissue. But Well, I, I mean, I th- think that's one in many misfires that goes into the third movie. Yeah, I mean, but. I guess let let's save it because I do want to get into like the background yeah, yeah. of Hobgoblin too. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, I I think that's pretty much it for characters. Do you guys want to touch on any of like the special effects or you know, CGI practical effects? I mean, for me, there wasn't a huge difference in this movie in the last. I do like a lot of the Doc Ock stuff. I think it's actually, I take it back. I think this is a um, a huge improvement. Um, in some of the CGI, especially with the Doc Ock stuff, I think that stuff really holds up uh, to today. But I still think there's still a, a lot of referential filming and cinematography, um, you know, from the first one to to uh, Spider-Man Two. Yeah, um, what stands out to me the most is uh, I, I think the way they shot it, they panned further away from Doc Doc's character when it was full CGI, but it looked better because he's a guy with metal arms and he's wearing the goggles. And, you know, it's much better than when you see Tobey Maguire without his mask on kind of CGI. And that gets, those moments are really rough for me. And we'll see that in the next movie where I think the CGI should have been stepped up more by 2007. Uh, but this was pretty good for the time. Uh, there was clearly a better budget because it's more consistent throughout. And, uh, you know, the scenes where he's climbing up buildings work pretty well. It looks decent in daylight, to be honest. Um, and the practical effects where you're close in on those mechanical arms look really good. I yeah. really enjoy those. They made, like, legit metal arms for that. And I really appreciate the 
detail that went into those practical effects specifically. And Spider-Man looks better too, moving, swinging, everything. My only critique of... It's not even CGI on this one. It's actually the practical effects. It's the scene with... Um, oh, wait, hold on. I might be for mixing this up with the... No, it is this one. It's with the train. Um, it's like the everything that's happening between the... the when he's stopping the train, um, it just looks... The CGI looks weird. Like everything that's breaking as the buildings are coming apart, the train as it's moving, and then it's you take that put that against the the people that are like standing behind spider-man like all crowded up like oh what's going on up here what's what's happening oh it's spider-man and it's very weird to like see like not the best cgi really weird obvious practical effect because it's just like toby Maguire probably on like a the front of a, a train car that they've got as a little set prop someplace uh with cgi screens behind them and then just some background actor standing like looking over like it doesn't feel real i feel like the way that they should be act reacting everything that's happening it just doesn't look right it's probably the the only scene that i have an issue with in this whole movie that's fair uh i think there are a few moments during that too where uh it's not just toby Maguire and they have the cgi spidey with the mask off that's probably Again, it like too. Uh, mask off spidey doesn't look good it it's really good when they have the mask on. They're so good at doing things when it's uh, in costume. And that kind of like goes to like 2008 when Iron Man comes out. The CGI for Iron Man holds up really well today. And it's because they were really good at making these like rigid, shiny, metallic uh, CGI uh, constructs and uh, it's much better now today than it even was then but like that's the stuff that looked good it's when they try to like recreate the face of somebody mm -hmm. and it looks more like a video game than anything was but, was he acting in a, a green suit for that or was the face the overlay not not even an overlay it's just uh so he's in the physical suit when it's like the head on front forward of Tobey Maguire. But when you're looking at the side shots, when he's got the web, it's all CGI. Yeah. And that's when you see uh, yeah, I hear you. Okay. Uh, the difference there. And right, it's like right. the juxtaposition, like Andy's yeah. saying, like when you go back and forth between these two things where it's like so real and then just not quite there, it looks really off. If you have that, consistently if you have consistent cgi it doesn't look too bad but yeah it, the juxtaposition between the two makes it stand out yeah but it's still that's not totally bad fair. that's you know, totally fair relative it's, it's to not. the time yeah 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 2004 i mean yeah. it just looks like a really it looks like a really good video game from today you know a lot of it yeah absolutely um do we want to hit on music i i think it was pretty much the same in this movie um, yeah repeated themes i say andy let's let's know. uh lead us into uh, spider-man 3 yeah, let's, let's one last i got one little oh. thing because we i don't know if we talk about this in the after show or not but just like little things we noticed um there's a doctor strange reference in this one if you guys i don't remember if you or if oh you yeah that John one jameson says that uh, oh good. yeah that's our yeah he's yeah, giving out yeah, like trying to figure out what to name doc ock Right. Doctor Strange is one of them. Uh, and yeah. then another one. I don't know if this connects to Doctor Strange or not, but I thought it was like a weird can't or not cameo, but little Easter egg thing I'd point out. Uh, the doctor that 
um, Peter Parker goes to see when he's like worried about the symptoms he's having. He's like wearing a white uh, lab coat and then underneath it is a Grateful Dead T-shirt. No idea what is up with that. Like, what is that a reference to? But I instantly noticed it and was like, that is so weird. What is this to? So I haven't done my research yet, but like Internet, when you're listening to this, I want you to go find out for me and then like see if there's anything to that. But I, I just wrote it down in my notes and didn't look it up afterwards. Did, so not was, sure if um, you guys know. Wasn't it Dr. Connors that he went to see? No. no, he he goes to like a physician to like talk because he's trying to figure out what's going on with his powers and everything. And uh, he basically says it's all mental, which I don't like this doctor because then he gets philosophical with him and like talking about how it's all mental and literally sits down on the bench next to Peter. Yeah. Oh, have some that's boundaries. right. I if remember my that doctor scene, sat next to me on the bench during my checkup, I would immediately leave and report him. Well, I mean, you'd probably be concerned with the Grateful Dead t-shirt that he was wearing in the office. Yeah. Like, I'm that's not comfortable the... being here right now. <laughs> I mean, I'm, yeah. cool. I'm cool with him. Like, we're we're probably having great conversations about alternative things. So, Well, that's the thing. As long as he doesn't get too close to me, I'm cool with the shirt. In fact, like, I think that's like the doctor equivalent to a mullet. Like, uh, business in the front, party in the back kind of deal. Like, business on top, party underneath. He just uh, low-key hands him, like, a tab of acid. He's like, try this, man. This will help you. Out. It's casual Friday. <laughs> He's ready to rip off the coat and just go watch the Grateful Dead. I mean, he's one of those deadheads who probably travels with them when they tour. Heck yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> That's right. I was right. thinking of the, the, the scene in um, where he goes the to next see in the next movie. Yeah, so yeah. I'll, I'll save that one. But um, Cool. Any other right. Easter eggs? I'll just throw it. No Easter eggs for you I guys. Can, I'm not uh, good at Easter eggs. I I recognize things once they're told to me, but I can't. I I can never like actually notice them in uh, in a live watch. I, I want to save them for uh, some of the after stuff, and we're we're starting to run a little long here, so I, I think we should uh, get into three here. Yeah, my bad. I didn't know when oh, no was the appropriate time to talk about that. Um, okay, no so here we go. Uh, keeping with the the clever names for this one spider-man 3 boom so spider-man 3 peter parker is still a college student and he's living uh, in that same hole in the wall apartment uh but this time he's with mj uh, and he's beloved as spider-man everyone loves spider-man uh all the people talk about him he's the rage so after watching mj on a broad uh on broadway while harry creeps from the theater balcony Peter and MJ go to the park for a makeout sesh while an object from space carrying living black goo crashes nearby. But let's ignore that for now. A new character is introduced named Flint Marco, a criminal who broke out of prison, but we care about him because he has a daughter <laughs> who's got something wrong with her. It, whether it's like cancer, she's got like a breathing tube in or something, and then yeah, she's got like a crutch. Say. He's just like, I'm going to get that money for the thing you've got yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's she's fucked up that's for sure um <laughs> that's not the right word but okay move on <laughs> ignoring that he is out for on, doctor fucked up. it's 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 in the um the ds uh dsm5 uh, DSM, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, dsm6 actually it's coming out yeah. next year You'll see oh it. is it all right all right yeah so anyways uh 
ignoring that harry is out for revenge on peter and has taken the mantle of the green goblin uh, he attacks and after mid-air battle he injures his head and has amnesia so this makes him forget all of the events that have occurred in basically the last two movies and he basically picks up after like the first movie and his father's dead so things are good at the very least um now with harry so uh Back to now Flint Marco. So he's on the run. He stumbles into a demolecularization chamber. It's just somewhere in the middle of like, I don't know, we're in Manhattan at this point, somewhere in New York City. Um, but it's filled with sand and his DNA becomes infused with it, which then makes him the name Sandman. So very straightforward how he gets these superpowers. Um, as that wasn't enough we throw in this new character, Eddie Brock, who's the photographer gunning for Peter's job at the Daily Bugle, which it's the third movie in, and still he's just like uh, a contract position, not even a full-time employee at the Daily Bugle. But I digress. So meanwhile, uh, MJ is replaced in her show, which really upsets her. Uh, She becomes jealous of all the attention that Spidey gets, and then she leaves Peter at dinner after his head goes too far up his own ass uh, he thinks that he's going to propose to her in this way sets up this whole plan doesn't work out for him uh spidey while uh fighting sandman uh discovers that he was involved in his uncle ben's death and in fact not just involved but the one who literally pulls the trigger to kill him uh which i will later come as a retcon uh distressed his negative thoughts attract the black goo which is actually an alien symbiote and it attaches itself to the spidey suit then Harry suddenly regains his lost memories and sets out to ruin Peter's life by forcing MJ to leave him completely. Peter, moody and wearing the symbiote suit, attempts to kill Sandman, blows up half of Harry's face, ruins Brock's career, and embarrasses MJ at the jazz club she works at. And we're going to get into this scene a little bit, but this is <laughs> freaking incredible. Oh, it's classic. Uh, after realizing what he's done, he removes the symbiote in a church bell tower. Brock, who just happens to be there to pray to God that oh, that Spider-Man dies, I think, is something. Yeah, he, he's what like, he wants. God, please kill Peter Parker. Please kill Spike. Oh, yeah. 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 Peter Parker is not Spider-Man. At, at that Peter point, Parker. it's just yeah. Peter Parker. Oh, That's right. hates Peter. Yeah, hates Peter Parker. So, like, wow. Um, uh, so where am I now? I'm lost with this. Brock also happens to be there. Uh, he takes on the symbiote as it falls on him and forms this alliance with the Sandman because somehow now they got to get teamed up together uh, to kill Spidey. They, wait for it, kidnap MJ yet again, <laughs> lure out the Spider-Man. He gets his ass kicked and is saved only by the sudden heroic showing up of Half-Face Harry. Uh, Spidey defeats the symbiote using sonic vibrations to detach it from Brock, blows it up, and Brock dies in the blast. Sandman tells Peter that his accomplice killed Ben, but he was complicit. Uh, no, Ted, I think actually he still kills him, but it was like he got distracted in the moment and pulled the trigger. So, like, yeah, it, I might have been wrong on that. I really wasn't paying that much attention, so I, I thought <laughs> I saw it as... Uh, is that the case, Zach, that he was like distracted and accidentally killed him or something. Yeah. Cause he, he runs away um, from him for killing it. Like, 
Yeah, that was the yeah, real story. Reason. Yeah. So yeah, he yeah. he accidentally pulled the trigger. Yes. Um, okay. So that must have been Uncle Ben is like trying to talk him down from it. That's where I got confused because I I think I like must have looked down to take a note during that scene, thinking that like he was talking him down, and then the other asshole comes in and shoots him, and then he's like, you know, I was complicit, whatever. I was there. No, he like bumps it. into him and he, okay. he pulls yeah. the trigger. So, yeah. well, I fucked up. Sorry. Oh, no, it's okay. I was reading along with the script here. Uh, so it doesn't matter anyways because Peter fucking forgives him. Uh, and Sandman <laughs> leaves by turning into just some dust in the wind uh, and somehow flies away. Uh, then Harry dies uh, in the fight, and the movie ends with Peter making up with NJ, and that's the end of this movie. It's uh, setting us up for the next one. Uh, well, that no, sure happens. I, I mean, that's how the series ends. Think yeah. about that. Like, it's a weird wrap up, isn't it? Yeah, it is. He, he walks into a jazz club that we'll get into that whole thing. But like, he should be barred from. He should not be able to walk into because he was such an asshole. And and he walks in there and just like kind of takes her hand and they start dancing. Right, like they. Dance and kind of just hug each other, and that's the end. That's how we end uh, the journey of Spider-Man in the Sam Raimi Sam Raimi universe of Spider-Man. Really yeah. anticlimactic shit. Well, I mean the 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 fight leading up to that was was a a, a great you know stinger, I guess. But yeah. it, even even so, I, I'm, I, the action was cool, right? But even so, the like just the characters involved like are pretty meaningless and they don't really yeah. give any weight to kind of the end of the Spider-Man series, you know, outside of Harry, you know, Harry, obviously that, that makes that he, he matters more than, you know, Venom and, uh, and Sandman, but those are the villains uh, Venom and Sandman, you know, who, who cares you know yeah. again like you said we just care about him because he has a daughter <laughs> like that's not compelling at all um i i don't like the sandman character uh, i think it's totally a throwaway right no. he has he has a line that's i'm not a bad person i've had a bad life that's what he says yeah well, again it's the, it's the humanity to drum up sympathy for this dude yep. and it's just like He's like, like, like I said in the the thing, he's got a daughter, and we don't even really know what's wrong with her. But like, that's just trying to get sympathy points from the get go. That's like how we're introduced to him as breaking into his presumably ex wife and daughter's house uh, to make a sandwich, apparently. Um, <laughs> and you know, he's on the run. He escapes from prison and all this shit. And like, you, they want you to care about him, and you just don't he's just crammed in there and this this movie is infamous for uh the three villain problem that when you look back at other movies that try to cram in villains this is like uh the reference point for that where they're just like well we're gonna get uh venom in there because venom's huge and we're gonna get sandman in there but honestly i wouldn't call venom venom uh there's a reason that when i wrote that uh, synopsis that I called it the alien symbiote, never called it Venom, because it's really just an excuse to give Eddie Brock superpowers, uh, giving Topher Grace as Eddie Brock superpowers. But when you look at it in the comics and then the animated series, it's 
this symbiotic relationship. They both hate Peter Parker and Spider-Man so much that they work together, even though they don't even really like each other, to kill him. Like, their hate drives each other. That's what attracts the symbiote to people is hatred and anger and all this stuff. That's, like, originally how it becomes uh, fused with Peter's suit is finding out that after being broken up with MJ, or at least not fully broken up, but they had the fight in the restaurant. And then uh, he finds out that Sandman was at least involved in his uh, Uncle Ben's murder. Uh, But like you said, I I think at that point, it's definitely like he thinks he killed him. And we find out later on that it was accidental, but either way, uh, yeah, it's just too much going on in one movie. Well, yeah, you very know, convoluted plot. Yep, it it is, and and I think it's really tough to do that in this you know ninety to you know one hundred and ten minute movie. Um, I don't know exactly the runtime here. This but... was two hours and eighteen minutes, the longest of the three. Way too long. Okay, that's that's actually a lot longer. So, and I think it probably was because. It had to be, you know, because of all that was going on in this movie, some more necessary than others. Um, but, you know, it's it's funny that you mentioned that because I actually am so disappointed in being, you know, a fan of the animated series and the more comic material um, that, you know, we, we saw one member of the Sinister Six in, in two Right. And I really wanted to see more of that in in three, especially when it was coming out, you know, at the time. I'm like, I would love to see like the whole Sinister Six, you know, with um, uh, Kingpin at the helm, you know, and in getting Electro and Vulture and like all of these, you know, villains like that's what I loved about Spider-Man. But. They showed in this movie that even with just introducing another member of the Sinister Six, plus another villain from Spider-Man's lore, plus another villain from Spider-Man's lore, it's like it's it's disjointed and it really didn't do what I had hoped Spider-Man could do, you know, because he Spider-Man has a lot of like iconic villains. Like, I feel like out of all of the villain, you know, um, characters within a specific superhero's journey spider-man probably has at least my favorite but i would argue kind of the most compelling villains or at least what widely most widely known villains um and they like sandman was just such a travesty when they introduced like because he's another one of the members of the original the original sinister six um it just it didn't hit the mark it didn't hit the mark um especially from what i know about spider-man yeah, I would I would say the Sandman character uh, as a whole is just like not necessary in this movie. I think you could have I'm not one to like, you know, create my own fan fiction of what I would want to see in movies. I really like to just sit and watch and appreciate. But this is something like so like that's stark that's right there in front of you because you see that like I know we don't call him the Venom character. But I would argue like Venom is more of a like well-known type of character for a villain than the Sandman is. That's a little deeper of a cut. So why would you introduce those two characters together when one I think is clearly going to outweigh? And then my point about like doing my own bit of like headcanon or like retelling of the story, you probably could have a way more compelling story with Peter having the the conflict with what, what's Topher Grace's character? Um, Eddie Brock, uh, Eddie Brock, Eddie Brock. Yeah. The character of Eddie Brock 
versus the character of Venom versus the character of Peter Parker in Spider-Man and how like that whole relationship that gives you your four characters right there without having to worry about any other things. Then they have to throw in Sandman and then we'll bring back in um, uh, Harry what's and the name? new goblin. Harry, Harry, Harry and the new goblin to act as like that counterbalance. It was just yeah. like this extra piece that you probably didn't need. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. But yeah, uh, going back to the Venom symbiote character, Eddie Brock, like there's no character given to the symbiote. Uh, And that's like the biggest travesty of this, I think, is that like this iconic character that, again, like he hates Spider-Man. The symbiote does because Spider-Man casts him off at a certain point. Originally, just like in this, like it. I think it's a little more believable in the comics, even though like Spider-Man technically goes to space. Um, That's how he gets the symbiote. And this is literally just, it lands conveniently next to them while they're having a in-web makeout session uh, in the park. And it, it does do the thing where it feeds off of his anger and everything like that. And is attracted to him because of that. But that's what drives the character of the symbiote of Venom. And that's why it teams up with Eddie Brock, because they have similar motivations. They both hate Peter Parker. But in this, it's just Eddie Brock that hates Peter Parker and conveniently is there when the symbiote is being dropped on him, essentially. And it it just doesn't work. It's just Topher Grace, who's miscast, I think, in this role to begin with. Uh, Speaking of bad casting, but... Uh, I agree. Yeah, it it just doesn't work. I I think they all. just I think they just took a sh- too many shortcuts. They they tried to introduce too much and they tried to take the shorter the shortest route possible. Um you know, because they did a good job at, at exposing Eddie Brock, um but not so much the like to your point, the connection between Venom and Eddie Brock. You know the symbiote and Eddie Brock, and, and yeah. I, I think they you know the it's just a shortcut when when he's below the bell tower and it gets on him. Like they could have drawn that out to be more compelling to for the symbiote to then have to search for Eddie Brock because they he was looking for the perfect host, right? But it, it's already just like that point is so far along in the movie already. Are they really going to add another? You know. At this point, you know, G story um, to this already convoluted movie with all of these different moving parts. Um, and, and so I think that's what it really suffers from. I don't hate the character. Um, I don't think Topher Grace is a good Eddie Brock, especially from the other Eddie Brocks that I've seen. You know, like I, when they when I don't love the movie, but when they said that, uh, you know, Tom Hardy was being cast as Eddie Brock, it's like, oh, that, that that's. Eddie Brock, like that, he is the, yeah. the 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 type of character that you 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 picture as Eddie Brock slash Venom, um, but you know it is what it is. Well, and go ahead, go ahead. Uh, so I just want to piggyback off that in what we think we're more familiar with, not so much the what comes later, but what we know from before the cartoon. Right. Venom is well fleshed out. Yeah, um, the the character you totally get it. So it's like you get this half ass version doesn't work yep Yep. i agree i wonder how he comes off to you know somebody who is not as familiar i i don't think 
that great. It, it's probably not as bad as what we think of it, but even still, like it's it's just Topher Grace trying to be menacing, and that doesn't even work. Um, you know, Eddie Brock is a slime ball. That's what mm-hmm. he's supposed to be. I, I think uh, the movie Venom with Tom Hardy takes a little bit of a different angle with it, kind of makes him an anti-hero. But when yeah, it comes down the, to it, yeah. the Eddie Brock who associates with Peter Parker and hates Peter Parker is a slime ball. And that's why he's uh, like outside of just the hate of Peter Parker, the perfect host for the symbiote. That's right. why they work so well together because the symbiote, like the way it looks when it's attached to a person is like a reflection, especially of Eddie Brock, like of the person on the inside. It's like uh, kind of just making that person inside out and turning him into a monster. Uh, but yeah, yeah. It, it just was miscast. It wasn't done very well. And, uh, you know, it, it could have served to have had one more movie to flesh it out. Like you said, they took shortcuts, cut corners. It kind of reminds me of what we've talked about with the DCEU, where they just kind of launched right into stuff. They didn't establish anything. I guess, like, at least the DCEU was like, here's some emails with some videos of these people beforehand, but that's not great either. But, yeah, it's just cramming too much in here. If they had maybe one more movie to flesh these guys out, I like the idea of the Sinister Six, but you really have to do the work to do it. It's just like we talk about with the new MCU. They do the work. They put in the work to establish all these characters before they have the big team up because you won't care if you don't do that. I mean, Spider-Man could have a a cinematic universe of his own, you know, with, I mean, and I would love to see um, more of that just because I I just love Spider-Man and all of its lore. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just so much and they, they try to do too much um, within this movie in particular. You know, the other yeah. two, I think, were, were well paced. Um, this movie was just tried too too much. Um, so uh, I think the only other character to talk about, because we talked about Sandman, we talked about Venom is Gwen Stacy shows up yeah. in this movie. Uh, again, unfortunately, women are used as props in these movies, uh, which really stinks as far as like how important these characters are like you talk about Gwen Stacy in particular like her love with Peter Parker in the comics and other media is like the most tragic of all of them and like really motivating factor for him and uh it, the other thread there too is uh there's Spider-Gwen and like all these different uh multiverse versions of her where she's like not just this tragic character who ends up dying but also she's this awesome character who uh not that she's not awesome in the first iteration but she's she turns into essentially spider-man in a multiverse which is super cool so like to get this kind of watered down version of her like it's used correctly i guess like for what they're going for but they use her as a prop to uh upset mj to divide mj and peter Uh, Because they have that kiss when uh, Spidey gets the uh, key to the city. And then later on, MJ gets upset because she sees that. And then when they're at dinner, Gwen Stacy shows up to dinner. And they find she finds out that Gwen Stacy is in one of Peter's classes. And they're kind of close as class partners. Yeah. So, like, she gets jealous of that whole thing. And, like, it does what it's intended to do. But again it's unfortunate that like that's all they're used for and literally to the point where later in the movie 
what, when we talk about the infamous jazz club scene, Peter brings her there as a prop to make Mary Jane jealous because he knows that will work. And uh, he makes a damn fool of himself doing it and looks like a giant asshole and embarrasses MJ in the process. But uh, it works. And uh, that's when Gwen actually ends up leaving and because uh, she realizes what's going on with that. Well, I, I want to defend the, the usage of Gwen Stacy a little bit, only because her character um, has been used in many different iterations with many different in many different ways. Like Gwen Stacy is never the same character twice in in a Spider-Man, you know, um, sometimes she's the main love interest. Sometimes she's um, the the conflict in the love interest between Peter and, and, and MJ. Um, other times she doesn't exist. You know, there's, there's just a lot of different iterations of uh, Gwen Stacy. And this is one of them. And I'm not defending the, the use of her as a prop again, but I will say that I think the execution was more to, to, um, to show that Peter was using her as a prop you know it's more of a character mm -hmm. flaw than a, a writing flaw in my opinion you know they're they're using her yes but they're using her to show that peter at this point is an actual piece of shit that's fair i can yeah. get behind that oh can i jump into my analysis now of the simp to cuck let's go back Absolutely. to the simp cuck analysis Okay, because it now it's developed further, um, and this movie I think might have to be the the prime example. Always go through is the the Tobey Maguire Spider Man development, um, but through this movie he goes from simp to cuck, or he starts off the movie as a cuck, and it begins with the first scene, which is the theater, and he's sitting there, and he turns to the person next to him and goes, "It's my girlfriend." Like he is enjoying <laughs> watching all these other people yeah. eye fuck her. Like everyone is just piercing at her in this dress and she's coming down all sultry like and he's like, yeah, it's my girlfriend all looking at everyone like, yeah, you like her. Yeah, great. So cuck. And then throughout <laughs> this, because of the symbiote, uh, he becomes an incel um, in his the truest form of like it, to end up uh, striking um uh, MJ in the face to like kind of like culminate in the the becoming of the incel. I, I get you there. He uh, he goes sort of full Chad, like the uh, the, the version of a Chad that uh, an incel <laughs> thinks a Chad is, because they're always about got to be an asshole. Every woman likes an asshole. You can't be the nice guy anymore. Yep. And he does that and it slaps him right back in the face uh, doubly because he alienates both MJ and Gwen Stacy in that point. So yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Peter's not a, uh, a good man in a lot of this movie um, because of no. the symbiote. Not just because of that though. Like he's also an asshole. The symbiote just exacerbates how much of an asshole he's being. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it kind of harkens back to, you know, when he first got his powers, you know, he felt 
unstoppable and cocky and confident. And it's kind of just bringing that back up in him. Um, and I kind of, I like, I actually like that reference to, um, you know, the, the first movie where his, his arc has actually brought him to a pretty good point. You know, he's still feeling confident in himself, but he's, he's doing overall the right thing at the beginning of this movie, but we uh, got to bring, we got to bring Peter Parker up, but it means we have to bring Tobey Maguire's bangs down. <laughs> that's I mean, the... yeah, that, that's emo Tobey Maguire. Uh, his hair somehow becomes darker when he's got the symbiote attached. Uh, and yeah, the, the bangs are just flowing right in front of his face. He's whipping them out whip. of the face. <laughs> They're I mean, so that, bad. His yeah. stringy, greasy bangs. No emo Yikes. kid ever looked like that. Come on, I'm a former emo kid, I know. That's not that's not that's the fair. look you're going for. That's fair. Yeah. Um, but man, w- what a movie this is, right? Uh, let's talk <laughs> about that scene, the the jazz club scene. Well, even before that, there's the scene of him walking down the street to the music that's only playing in his head, and he's you know doing the pointing and stuff like that. Uh, it, both you guys and anybody listening right now, do yourself a favor and look up the stripped down version of that where they they cut it where because there's a couple scenes that interject in between that uh so it's not like a full scene of him just walking down the street but somebody did a cut where it's just him walking down the street it's just street noise music away yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's amazing it's so good it's about 50 seconds you know it's going to make your day that much better link in the description yeah, we'll, we'll have to do that. Dude, it's uh, so funny. Yeah, incredible. But yeah, he's just feeling himself right then and there. Uh, you know, and before that, he's uh, being fed milk and cookies by the weird daughter of his uh, landlord across the hall. Uh, yeah, you know, she's the type of person or well, I guess should say he's the type of person that probably would accept a pig as payment for the marriage of his daughter. You know, like that's like the vibe I get from that family. OK, you didn't know where that I'm... was going at first, but now I do. You know what I'm talking <laughs> yeah. about? Like yeah, a dowry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely it, it's it's a weird uh, it's a weird situation. That's a weird dynamic that we haven't really talked about, but I feel bad for her in uh, all these movies. Yes. She's just fawning over Peter Parker, but also uh, speaking of like she's being excited a simp, for him. Yeah, well, yeah but she, she's back. a female simp in, in these movies. Yeah. If I take the reins and uh, talk about simp analysis here, you know, she's the one who uh, answers the phone in the hallway and tells him that MJ's called and she's excited for him, even though she clearly wants to be with him. You got to feel for her. Uh, she's a tragic character. <laughs> I agree. And, and set up very well, actually, between because like in the second movie, you do see that like where she's like she's I fucking him too. Like she knows what's going on and just waiting for that third movie for MJ to break up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My favorite line from him uh, while he's going through this face, he's on the phone. Like, how about some milk? Yeah. <laughs> like, you fucking yep. asshole. I know. He's oh, the worst. Uh... What a line. And the milk is a, a trope in movies. I didn't know if this was a thing. I heard this. I was watching something. Don't remember what it was. But it's common now to see, uh, or not common now, but it's been a thing where adult men will drink milk to make something be unsettling. 
and it works like it's in a clockwork mm. orange um oh, what's before. that uh what's another i forget i'm blanking on the name of the movie right now um damn i can't think of it but it's a, the main character he drinks like a glass of milk in it uh it doesn't really help with the podcast so i'll get off the topic now but it is a trope <laughs> that gets used i think i've heard yeah. that before I mean, it is unsettling. Uh, I just watched you the first it. episode yeah. of season two of uh, The Boys, and uh, Home and Homelander goes into the freezer, takes what's her name's breast milk out, and that's uh, a different level. The thing, it is a different level, but it's super yeah. uncomfortable. Um, that that show is is worth discussing. It's something else. It's <laughs> fantastic. Uh, Yes, let's get into that scene, though. So uh, he's got the walk down the street scene, but later on he brings Gwen Stacy to the jazz club and, uh, you know, it's kind of letting things play out. MJ goes up there to perform because she's a waitress slash performer there. And then the dig on this. (laughs) And somehow the band knows to play whatever dumb shit he's going to dance to. Uh, he's 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 uh he's got some improv skills you can say that on on the piano had a good riff yeah you you know what uh that's that's pretty great and he weirds mj the fuck out by going on the piano in that moment and uh yeah i I feel for her so hard in that moment because it's just so cringy but on top of that your ex-boyfriend's in there trying to show you up with his new hot thing in there and he's just making an ass of himself. And then he ends it by hitting you. Yeah, yeah. Horrible. Rough ending to a, to an already rough night. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, when you see him walk down the street, looking at him move the way he moves, pretty much unlike any other human I've seen move, um, it just, it, 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 he looks like he's never walked before um, when he's trying to add some swagger to his walk and then you see him dancing in the club is toby mcguire actually dancing is that a double it might be i don't think the same person could do both of those things i could get behind that you know i don't know does he actually mean that choreography this might have permanently damaged Toby Maguire's career going for it. I can't remember his cinematography off my head after 2007, but mm. like, yeah, I don't know if he's got the skills to do that kind of dancing. Oh man. It's real cringy. Just the whole scene. It's, it's super uncomfortable. You don't need milk well, to make that uncomfortable. It stands yeah, on its own. Even worse. If there was milk in the jazz club, <laughs> but a glass of milk. Uh, but let's get off of that and talk about Same some milk. themes quickly. Uh, unless you guys have anything else. Yeah, we're just saying milk over and over again. Uh, with this scene, I, I don't have any, like, I did not like it. <laughs> let's just go there. Yeah. Yeah, there's not much else to say. Um, man, well, any other okay. characters stuff that we want to go over, though, in this movie? I, I don't think so. Uh, at least for me, the characters are very hollow. Uh, that. They try something with them, and it doesn't work. Probably the best one, like you said, Zach, is probably Gwen Stacy, and I'm kind of, or I think maybe Andy said it, uh, but I'm kind of coming around to, like, that idea that, like, she is used as a prop, but it's really to show how shitty Peter is more than anything. Um, But Eddie Brock and Flint Marco, the new characters, really don't do anything for you. 
Aunt May has her classic uh, sage advice moment yeah. where, you know, right. he says he wants to propose to Mary Jane. And she's like, well, you know, um, Uncle Ben proposed to me at a certain point, only a couple months in or whatever. And uh, I said no, uh, but I loved him and I, I just wasn't ready. And I knew he wasn't ready either. And uh, even after that, Peter's like, well, Aunt May, I'm fucking ready. I don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, it, it's just, it sets up the whole movie where uh, he's still not ready to be an adult. He's not still not ready to be that full-fledged adult taking on all these responsibilities, not being so full of himself. And the big thing with her uh, from uh, Aunt May is, like, you have to be ready to care about that other person more than you do yourself. And that's really the driving force between that wedge between him and MJ, where, like, every time she talks about her problems, he's like, yeah, you know, I deal with that uh, as Spidey and all this stuff, but, you know, it's fine. Everybody loves me. No big deal. It's great for me. And uh, he really has to learn to love her more than he loves himself. I had a different take with that theme, um, th I actually didn't like MJ for it, less so him, because I felt like he was always trying to, like, give something to relate to. Like, I'm just trying to relate to. I'm just trying to find something to connect with. And, like, she's, like, a very strange character change in this one, where now she becomes jealous of him. It's less so on him not really understanding her, but it's, like, her not understanding him. At least that was my interpretation of the events. But I, I can see how it could be viewed the other way around. I think it's part of it. Um, I, I think it's really like him just not understanding where she's coming from when she's saying like, you know, that one of her big things is uh, she gets a really negative review uh, for her role in the Broadway show. She's having a real hard time with that, which like you could probably say she's super whiny. Like it, it's a critic. They are going to criticize you. And that's exactly what Peter actually says in that moment. Yeah. But I guess her whole thing is like, instead of making her feel better, he's just talking about how like, well, this is how I deal with this as Spider-Man. And on top of that, like, I think there's a level of that where she's out there on stage, putting herself on the line without a mask on. And then he, yeah. he's beloved with a mask on. And it's like, who are you to tell me when I'm putting myself out there? Like you're doing great stuff too, but you're disguised and nobody knows who you really are. Well, I that, think it's, that makes sense, but it's also a really relatable uh, issue, you know, between couples like, oh, yeah, you know, and it, that's actually a very humanizing moment, I think, for both of them, um, you know, that well, that, that trying to just just be empathetic and nothing more. You Don't try to solve a problem. Don't try to 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 let them know that, you know, what they're feeling. Just be empathetic, you know, and. And um, and it's a struggle for Peter to do that uh, in this moment. I think that's really relatable. Just yeah. as a human emotion. Yeah, he, he probably thinks he's doing the right thing there, but he, he needs to be more in touch with what will help his spouse in that moment. Right. Uh, you know, it, it might help somebody else to hear something that seems empathetic from him. But uh, especially because he always has a positive twist on it. I think that's really like what twists the knife for MJ is like, right. well, this is all really negative for me and I'm not handling it well. So like I need something more than what you're saying right now. Or last for that. that matter. 
Yeah, that's true too. Yeah, maybe less is more in that case. Yeah. Um, anything else on this one? Uh, as far as the plot, themes, characters, uh, uh, there's one character her- thing. Oh, go ahead, Zach. Uh, I, I'm just. I was just going to bring up the uh, the Harry redemption. You know, uh, the between Peter and Harry. You know, even after the the accident, Harry comes to. To his rescue, essentially, he he wouldn't have been able to defeat his two new villains of the Sandman and Venom, um, or the artist formerly known as Venom, um, together without Harry in this circumstance. And that's even after he just blew his face off. Um, well, okay, so the thing that I was about to chime in is this, yeah. but on the opposite end of it, something I really disliked, which is it's a minor character and a plot point. So this, these two things are intimately tied. It's the housekeeper, dude knows the secret so yeah. we have this revelation which is the turning point for harry to become the the good goblin i guess we can call him that for the moment <laughs> um to become good goblin is to find out like oh you know i'll let you know this like right now um i like analyzed what had happened uh, with your father i took a look at his autopsy i saw that the blade that pierced him was actually his own from his speeder device and that spider-man didn't kill him this whole time that's oh, the so only thing it took <laughs> we're yeah the only thing we're just having this conversation now and now i'm gonna oh that's it he didn't really mean to i'm gonna go save my best friend yeah, and uh, you know, as much as like it's good to have redeeming moments for characters, he's hated Spider-Man and like Peter Parker for one and a half movies, and then when he's fighting alongside him, they're a little too chummy for my taste. Uh, like it, he's kind of joking around, like, "Eh, what are you gonna do?" <laughs> uh, a couple of James Franco moments, and I'm yeah. like, "Man, yeah. Yeah. that's not earned." I, I don't know. It, it was forced a little bit, and yeah, like the the timing, the perfect timing of the butler just being like, "I've been sitting on this." Probably a good time to tell you, like, I, I don't know, maybe before I lose my mind and start seeing my dad's ghost and hearing his voice and shit, telling me to kill my best friend might have been a good time to say. He killed himself with his own glider. Butler, you know, you're fired. Fucking out of here. You're no Alfred. That's for fucking sure. Yeah, Alfred would have been on top of that shit. Absolutely. Yeah, without a doubt. Well, I think it's just it's another example of a shortcut that was taken to to get to the end of the movie. Um, you know, it was it was not a good setup. It wasn't even a good monologue. Uh, you know, it's just like he didn't even say it that well. Um, but, you know. It, it 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 needed to happen, and so that's how the they decided to get there. Um, and you know, it, it just leaves a little to be desired. I mean, it, it happens throughout the whole movie. Yep, absolutely. One more little plot character thing too, and just throw it out there is the Uncle Ben Ratcon. We kind of just washed over that. I think this is important because the whole premise of setting up Peter Parker, why he chooses to be Spider Man, is he's given the choice. He needs to do something good or do something bad. He choice chooses to do the thing that's bad or for vengeance, and as a consequence of that, Uncle Ben dies. As it turns out, and maybe the slight bit there where you can say like, oh, because the dude ran up distracted him and that's what caused him to pull the trigger i guess it kind of allows that still that thing to happen but even then that's just an accident so 
I don't know if that same trigger, like if, you know, he learns, Peter Parker learns that this tragic accident happens that would lead to it as opposed to um, an intentional thing like murder, which is what he originally thought it was. So I just your guys' thoughts, I know you mentioned it briefly, like before that you didn't think it was a big deal. I did. I thought this completely undercuts that and they glaze over it like it's not a big deal. But I don't even see how like that helps the plot at all. I, you already tried to make us be sympathetic for this character by giving him the daughter with the the issue the, ha- the health issues so like now it's double down on the being sympathetic for him but like oh by the way he didn't mean to kill uncle ben it was an accident well it gives him a yeah. way out um and, and and i'll tell you the reason why i don't think it was a big deal is because the lesson is already learned the lesson that peter learned from thinking that he killed his that that basically his actions led to his uncle being killed um, and he needs to now do the right thing, no matter what he feels in, in his heart, you know, no matter what kind of vindication he feels he's going to get, um, it, it's, it's already learned. So the, this, this reimagination of the events, I don't think hurts Peter Parker's character at all. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's already been established. And again, perception is everything. He's already perceived that this happened this way. And so it's already shaped him. Um, and new information may be um, useful, but again, I don't think that it's, it, it really triggers any major consequence other than giving, uh, what's his name, Flint Marco, um, or other way around, something Marco, um, a way out at the end. That's it. Uh- I'll disagree a little bit uh, because there's a scene earlier in the movie where I, uh, in my notes, called Sandman Mudman, where Peter with the symbiote suit goes out on a a vengeance streak, essentially. Like, that's where, you know, basically I I put in the synopsis with just the rundown of, like, blowing up Harry's face, embarrassing MJ, all this stuff. He thinks he kills Sandman by, uh, in the sewers, uh, just throwing a bunch of water at him and turning him to, into mud and like it yeah, shows he was, that go ahead finish, finish your I, I, I don't know I, I feel like that shows that the lesson really isn't learned because right. he does feel bad in the second movie about like even though it was an accidental death his anger and him tracking guy down the guy that he thinks killed his uncle is what led to that guy's death similar to uh allowing that guy to escape led to his uncle's death as well so I, I think him, he takes a couple steps back when he finds out, like, this is the guy who did it because he's uh, both, like, an asshole at that point and he's got the symbiote suit, like, feeding into his worst desires and he's just ready to fucking kill the guy. And he essentially does. Like, it, by the miracle that Sandman is able to survive that, he survives, but for all intents and purposes, he sought out to murder Sandman. Correct. And and I but I will I will push back again in that uh, he was he had the symbiote attached to him at that point, which again is is bringing him back to that uh, that kind of initial rise of Spider-Man sense sensibility that he that he once had. He he kind of reverts back to that vengeance, anger, um, you know, the, all of these negative emotions coming out because of the symbiote. Once he sheds that symbiote, he again realizes 
and has a better sensibility to him and and eventually forgives Sandman. And I don't I don't think that he forgives him just because uh, he he tells him the story and the events of how it happened. He forgives him because he's no longer under this this um, the kind of the spell of the symbiote. Um, he he has he has a moral compass again. Well, no, so now you're just like, I think that makes it worse, actually, Zach, because now he's like, you're saying that he's, I don't think that's the case at all, because the the dude explains what happened. He's like, no, let me tell you what really happened. And that's what causes him. So what you're saying is like, essentially, he never really he had finds, that lesson. That no, no, first. No. He finds out that Flint, that this guy killed him at the, uh, from the police. Yeah, he finds that part out, which caused him to do this thing. But then later on, he tells him, no, this is what really happened. And that's when um, Peter Parker's like, oh, now I guess I forgive you for it. No, I, it's not I, anything else. The trigger is him telling him, oh, it was an accident. I understand what you're saying. But the, at, at that point, the only reason they were they were at all in conflict um, to peter's concern is because he's now destroying the city now now sandman is after him now they have this conflict already established because of the symbiote if they did if it wasn't because of that symbiote they never would have had a conflict to begin with and at that point even though peter had shed the symbiote uh, the sandman doesn't know that he now he's out to kill him because he needs to get rid of spider-man no he knows he knows he killed him you said that already like he's it's not because the symbiote that he wants to kill him it's because he's the reason his uncle died he's the true reason now he's mad at him right but but at the end of the movie they're in at the end of the movie they're in conflict because he's now sandman is after him not the other way around this is true but what led him up until this point the, the whole thing was him saying that oh I'm without the symbiote being there. You, when you add the symbiote, it actually makes it worse. He, before the symbiote is attached to him and doing anything to influence decisions, when he finds out that he's the actual murderer, that's when he decides I need to go after this guy. I need to get. Wasn't he? Did, didn't he have the symbiote at that time when he found out? When he when he I, when he was I don't at the think he had it on his suit yet. So I I think what ends he up he didn't uh, sure. I, no, I, I remember that uh, differently. I, I'm pretty sure he finds out and then he has the bad night with MJ and that leads him to just be like, there's the scene where he's really restless at night trying to sleep and that's when the symbiote kind of crawls out, like feeding it on his hatred and anger and then attaches itself to the suit and then he wakes up like on a building. He's in the black symbiote suit and he's on a building, doesn't know how he even got there. And then he's like, I feel great, all this stuff. And that's when he starts to go after Flint Marco. Um, exactly. That's what I'm saying. That's that's what triggers him to go after Flint Marco, because I remember him him you know being in that black suit in the in the mine or whatever they you know wherever they were. Yeah, no, that but that happens after that. He already wants blood earlier on in the movie. But he doesn't like, act on it. He's not going straight vicious. He's not going to murder the guy. He wants justice, but well, he, he wasn't. He wants to murder him, though. That, that's yeah. I, I think that's what Andy's point is. And, like, it, it almost comes off, and I know you're not trying to do this, but, like, it's okay that he tried to murder him because he was wearing the symbiote suit, when in reality it's like that's not okay, and he was really just, his inhibitions were gone, and he was, uh, working on his innermost 
darkest desires in that moment without any conscience of it. And I, I get what you're saying with that, but at the same time, like he got there because he had those feelings. He didn't just get there because the symbiote attached to him and it's like, symbiote's evil, therefore I'm going to go do the evil thing, I guess is like what Andy no, and I are I, I totally understand that, but it, he probably would not have tried to straight up murder Flint Marco had he not been involved with the symbiote. Yeah. Well, okay, I, maybe, but the, the ultimate point, not even murder, is just like, what is the lesson learned? At the end of the first movie, we get the idea that Peter Parker learns that when you make the bad choice, when you don't choose justice, or um, yeah, you don't choose justice, you choose revenge. You don't make the right choice. You go with whatever the what bad choices. This easy way, good versus bad choice. The most simple way to define it. Um, something bad. There are going to be bad consequences for that unintentional thing. So he decides, you know, no, I got to be the superhero. I have to make the good choices. Then we get into the third movie, and he learns, no, the killer isn't actually the person you unintentionally killed. It's this other person. Now he's like, oh, now I have to go find that person. And he hears the store, or that's when and he admits to um, Aunt May that. You know, he wants to go out and find like or what has actually happened. That was it the third one or am I misremembering the scene now? Where he's telling her like um you know, like I'm the one that killed was that the second that's one? That's the second one. Yeah, that's yeah, two. That's the second so one. there's a there's another table conversation that they have then, which is about like I think it's one of the lessons where you have to like, it's like do everything. Right. The, 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 for, like Uncle Ben wanted would have wanted you to forgiveness. He 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 goes back to her and says, "I." That's th after th the fact. No, no. There's so there's a conversation that happens before, and so yes, and, the, and then the, he feel he goes and goes. Yeah, I killed the, like a t Spider Man killed him, and yeah, she's he's like relearning. Yeah, I don't the, want the lesson that. that he already learned. Exactly. That's my point. It undercuts the first lesson. He doesn't need to relearn the lesson. He already learned it. There was it, no, no point in introducing this it other helps plot. Him, it helps him realize what he's doing at the time. It helps him understand that the, that he has not done the right thing within it, uh, because of this symbiote. He, he's 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 real. This is all before. His motivations and everything is before the symbiote. He no. learns that someone else killed his dad or his uncle before the symbiote and him come together i i i know that what i am saying and and this will be my last this will be the, my last <laughs> okay. point um after he thinks that he killed flint marco he goes back to his aunt and he says yep. hey guess what this guy's dead and she said that's not what i wanted that's not what your uncle would have wanted and that helps him realize that he's not he's not on the right path anymore. He's not doing the right thing anymore, and it's and he re, he's starting to realize that it's likely because of you know he, he's he's already had he's had a bad few weeks, right? And this symbiote is is exacerbating all of the feelings that he's that are bad, and he's starting to realize that now. And what Aunt May says helps him realize that. It helps him get out of this funk. Do you understand? So it's it doesn't undercut it. It is a relearning after this new set of conflicts, this new set of problems that Peter is facing. But ready? So you're calling it relearning. I say that undermines the first lesson. <laughs> if you have to relearn something, you have to like give a different lesson. But again, it's it's in it's indirect. 
It's indirect cause from this new this new conflict that he's facing. Well, no, it's a retcon. It's a it's they not. have to go back it's and not. they have they have okay. to go back and change it. They're like, this is how he dies, and then all of a sudden, in the third one, no, that's not how he died. This is how he actually died. That is the definition of a retcon. Literally. All right, we're gonna have to dis- di- agree to disagree on this because I don't think that there is any like it, uh, as forgiving Fun. as you are with the sequels. I don't know how you can't see that it's it, 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 it my perspective here. But we'll save it when we get to the Last Jedi, and because I think there's a lot of com- uh, comparisons to this moment, I'll remember. But let's give it up to the audience. You decide who's right in this. Is Zach right on the moral high ground that we needed this second lesson, or Ted and I right that we don't need the second lesson let me be clear i don't think we need it i'm telling you the, the why i think that it, it that all of this happening is okay but then it means it undermines it all right, all right, all right. <laughs> no it does. no it doesn't no way let's, no way no way let's agree to disagree because right. i i see both of your points i don't necessarily agree with all of them to the fullest extent i think i agree more with andy but either way yeah. i get where you're coming from Zach. <laughs> Here's the one thing we can end on that we can all agree about. Zach condones murder as long as you're wearing an alien suit. I you guys are still missing my point. Still missing it. But I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I quit this podcast. I'm just kidding. Over, it's okay. Over defending Spider-Man 3. <laughs> It's okay. We can agree to disagree. I think you, you're both you're both wrong, and you're not understanding my point at all. But we'll agree to disagree. I actually think it's the opposite that we right. understand what you're saying, and we Let's don't. So that's just end it. Uh, don't quit because uh, it'll make <laughs> more work kidding. for me. I'm gonna have to erase your little floating head from the logo. You know, it's it's not good. Yeah, <laughs> that's um, that's true. I don't want to put you that. through that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Okay, anything else on this movie uh, before we get into effects? We've talked about this movie and one whole scene in particular for way too long. Uh, (laughs) Anything before we get into effects? Because that's really the last thing to end on. I don't think so. I I don't know that I have a whole lot of effect. uh, I do. Comments. I I think... (laughs) I think this movie in 2007, there was enough time, there was enough technology where these scenes, and maybe you'll disagree with me, but the scenes where Tobey Maguire, and again, it's like Tobey Maguire, not Spider-Man, is fighting Harry Osborn, and both of these people have their faces uncovered by masks. It looks so fucking bad, because it looks like floating heads on cgi bodies in some points but then other points it goes to full cgi and it's just rough and it sucks because like the choreography of it and the intent were actually really cool like the way things happen it's very cool it's a mid-air fight which uh this series has been known for so far up to this point between Mm -hmm. original green goblin and uh fighting doc ock on top of buildings but i don't think that sequence in particular works and i hate everything that just has toby mcguire swinging around because it looks so bad i don't know if that stood out to you guys but like this one to me was unforgivable in 2007 i feel like it should have been better i definitely will jump on the bandwagon of saying it should have been better i just googled like other movies in 2007 um it's not a lot of crazy like big cgi things beowulf came out and that's pretty like you know Uh 
uh, like that's the idea of doing the animation to make it realistic so i wonder if there's also just like this is like what they're doing in cj at the time like maybe this is the awkward transition phase to the next level of cgi like i i don't think it holds up i don't know if that's the studio's fault not developing enough blah 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 but like nothing is jumping out at me as being like wow this is this is what we were talking about in 2007 of great cgi and in fact things like other than what you just said i don't like sandman cgi i think it's really awkward his transitions between sand and person um yeah and then the same thing with the symbiote i think it looks super like fake like when uh the the scene in the church where it lands on um uh topher grace and like he like the way he reacts to it does not look real at all like it didn't even land on him yeah, the, the interplay between real person and the CGI thing just didn't match up. I will say I think the CGI symbiote looked pretty good as far as, like, texture and everything. It had that, like, wet look. Uh, it doesn't look that far off from what we get in Venom uh, Not uh, only a couple of years ago. I mean, it's not as good but I think it's pretty good for the time. And it seemed like they blew all their budget on that. It, it seems like this movie just had too many high action scenes going on and they decided to allocate the budget in certain spots in that first scene where uh, Harry's attacking Peter just doesn't work for me. I think like, especially if you put the masks on, just do that. That helps so much, and it's probably something in the contract where you, you know how these actors are. They have to see their face for a certain amount of time, mm-hmm. and uh, it, that's probably what ended up getting in the way of that, and maybe it would have looked better without that, but, man, it was rough for me at least. You see, I, I didn't really notice that as much. Um, you know, looking, it's, it's trying to think about it. I can see what you're talking about, but it didn't bother me as much. I think the the, the worst of it, um, Andy mentioned it, is is Sandman. Um, he, he, he just looks rough. It, it's just not good enough for the the rest of the movie you know especially when he's like transitioning into sandman when like you see him actually become sandman like this the features of that model were just terrible it was really bad and then all of a sudden he just becomes human like there's no real transition there um and when he you know when he's punching his arm becomes you know this big sand block and it just doesn't look uh, smooth at all at all um but i you know that's that's the one thing that really jumped out to me it was a sandman and and in yeah. in a similar thing with venom um when, especially when um the one scene where eddie pulls back the the symbiote and shows his face that that was a little bit jarring but i think you're right ted overall uh, venom did look pretty good just as as the symbiote venom in, in himself but when combined with Topher's face, um, it, it was a little jarring. Yeah, but. and maybe that's a Topher Grace problem, or maybe that's <laughs> it's probably more, uh, you know, it, I, I kind of shit on him a little bit, but he can't help that he was cast in this movie. And, you know, Topher Grace is Topher Grace. He's going to play Eric Foreman in pretty much everything. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> you know, it's not really his fault, but yeah, that... that like Andy said too earlier, like the, just the interplay, like the physics of them interacting together doesn't work and it's not overlaid yeah. well. Um, 
Yeah, it is what it I is. I can definitely see that criticism. Uh, want to skip music again? Because again, similar. Same. Doesn't change. Yeah, I mean these scores are all very similar. You know, yeah. I don't. I can't even tell you if, if there's like any villain themes. You yeah, know? I couldn't pick it out if you asked me to. Yep. Well, uh, why don't we wrap things up here and uh, talk about our ranking? Uh, Andy, do you want to go first on your rankings? Do you have? I them? think I think this is one of the easiest rankings to do. Um, it goes right in order one two three and between one and two there are just differences between them where i could say like there are certain aspects of two i like better than one vice versa but if i'm just gonna go with what i think works there's one thing we didn't talk about which is the science bit i mentioned a little bit but the, like the nuclear fusion stuff the whole river doc ox death like that's it this just didn't work for me with what else was going on i think if they had done that maybe a little bit better not in terms of the cgi but like the story how it was just kind of like thrown at us i think i might have liked it more and maybe would have put it ahead of one uh three is awful i i looked up the box office i can't believe this was the highest grossing um out of them maybe that's just due in, due to inflation between 2002 and uh, 2007 but like man i do not like three that was a that was a hate watch to to get through it <laughs> Yeah, I mean, mine would be uh, the same order. Uh, I don't feel that bad about three. It was definitely the worst of the bunch, and and frankly, not a super just good movie in general. But um, yeah, I love. I, like I said, one is the most nostalgic to me. It was like really exciting at the time, and I remember it the most. Um, you know, I, I it, it strikes a great balance between silly comic book movie and exciting action adventure movie. Um, you know, it really does a good job at that, but I do like Doc Ock the best as the villain. Um, and, and just all of the, the graphics that go along with Doc Ock, like the, the huge jump, you know, from one to two in that aspect. Um, but yeah, that would be my ranking one, two, three. Yeah. I think this is going to be the first time we all universally agree. One, two, three. Uh, and similar thoughts uh overall i think one is the strongest and uh hits all those tones of campiness but grounded and real enough uh two though uh alfred molina almost takes it as far as like his performance it almost takes it over one like that's how good he is and that's mm -hmm. like not to say willem dafoe is great too yeah. uh in one but like alfred molina i think takes it to another level like i said before he's uh a better caliber actor than these movies and he still fit it really well um and then three is just a mess i there are a few redeeming qualities i think some of the themes are redeeming but the execution is lacking the introduction of new characters is lacking. And I, I think the introduction of those characters, Andy, you were talking about the box office, I think more like it's probably the hype of, oh shit, Venom's going to be in this movie. Uh, that's awesome. And, you know, maybe if some people like Sandman, but more than anything, I think it's like in the trailer, if you saw Venom, it's like, fuck yeah, they're going to end this on a high note. And then it's like, ooh, you know, but right. it, that opening weekend drives a lot of that box office. Uh, and then it probably trails off really hard after that. Um, yeah. Overall, 
I I really like the series for the most part. One and two are really strong, and uh, three is what it is. Uh, it's not a good end, but at least it is the end, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I know. Maybe. I think there are some things that like they could have set it up to continue on, to keep making money off these things. I don't know what was happening with the studio and Marvel and how all that works. Um, with Sony and whatnot to determine. Um, but I, I think this was probably one of my favorite trilogies or ser- like because it's so self-contained. I think I've mentioned this before with other um, franchises, and I think that would be my metric going forward, is that the more self-contained it is and knows what it wants to be and ties in what came before it to what's coming forward, it all connects, it all fits in. That's a good franchise. It, I think it, it achieved what it wants to do as a franchise. Others are hit and misses, which we've talked about before. I think this was really good. I think it, it did what it wanted to do with these movies and executed it. I agree. Yeah. I mean, th- this is just one of, I mean, not only my favorite Spider-Man um, and uh, you know, I, I think we're pretty tight on time. So maybe we'll skip that conversation for right now, but um, it, it's, it's one of my favorite superhero series um i just i i really enjoy it uh, and and again i might just be because i'm 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 on a nostalgic kick but um really really enjoyable um this is one of my one of, one of my favorite episodes to do with you guys yeah it was a lot of fun uh well let's talk about what we're doing next time so uh for the next episode and uh, luckily, because we're doing this live, we decided this beforehand. If you listen to the podcast and audio forum, uh, you, you get an edited version where we're like, oh, shit, we didn't talk about what we're doing next time. We've got it together this time. <laughs> so we decided on what I'm going to call the Shyamalanaverse. Um, <laughs> I like it. So good. it's going to be... Uh, the Unbreakable series, I guess. So there's the movie Unbreakable with Bruce Willis. There's the movie Split, which seems like it's not connected, but then there's an end credit scene. And then the movie Glass, which kind of brings everything together. I've only seen Split. I'm excited to watch Unbreakable because I've heard great things about it. And I'm excited to see uh, Glass to bring it all together. Yeah, that one should be so. fun. I, I love uh, loved Split. Um, I really liked Unbreakable too. That'll be fun to rewatch because I haven't seen that in so long. Um, but I haven't seen Glass yet, so that'll be fun to kind of see how it wraps up. Should be I a good conversation. Any of these, and I'm, what I'm most excited for is I I think what's cool about franchises what we're doing is when movies are going to span longer periods of time in the real world where yeah. you can like build upon. Um, things that have happened, they can fit more historical things that have occurred in real life. I don't know because I haven't seen these movies, but I'm I'm thinking that there's going to be some really good conversations to talk about what they did in 2000 versus what they did in 2015 or whenever the split came out. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah that's, that's going to be interesting for sure. Uh, well, we're going to wrap this up, but we're going to also be doing kind of uh, an after show kind of deal here. So we're going to talk about some of the more fun aspects to stuff. Uh, we, even though we still went long, we, we can't help ourselves, apparently, with, with <laughs> talking and talking about this stuff, which is a good thing. We, we enjoy doing this, and uh, it's a lot of fun. But uh, we, we left some stuff, uh, some, like, fan theory stuff, some just speculation, some funny stuff that you notice in these movies. 
but we're going to save that for this next part. So when this comes out in audio form, it's going to be two separate episodes and they're going to be released on separate weeks. But as far as watching it live, you get to see it all at once. Well, here's here's my proposal to you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I know this is live and uh, I'm calling an audible, but it's one o'clock on a Sunday. So what do you guys say we postpone the after show uh, to, uh, you know, sometime this week? You know, we can do uh, a live stream Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday. Oh, right. That's your 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 off day, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's yeah, let's plan on doing it Wednesday because uh, I'm running out of steam um, and uh, I'm already going to be miserable tomorrow. So um, <laughs> so let's let's uh, let's put a put a hold on uh, our, our after show, if that's all right with you guys. Yeah, that works for me. Uh, you know, just I guess going forward, that's what we're going to try to do is what I laid out there. Uh, but this actually works. I didn't even realize it was one o'clock. So <laughs> let's get the fuck out of here. <laughs> I got a piss. Uh, thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll see you for that one. And then uh, Unbreakable. Yes. All right. Thanks for watching, everybody. Peace. Peace. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode,